Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. Imagine what it would mean for one of the seven wonders of the world to be destroyed. Imagine a bomb or something blowing up a pyramid, perhaps the Great Wall succumbing to an earthquake. And think about that event unfolding and see it in your mind's eye. I'd like to think that we as humans today have the scientific prowess to figure out exactly why it would have happened. And I'm sure that in the aftermath of something like that, the explanations would be immediately forthcoming. But even today, there would be some among us who would say that the destruction of these places entailed some kind of cosmic signal. What is that? Why do we feel that way when something important to us is destroyed? Well, it's not just a theoretical question. This is a, you know, an epistemological idea from humans that has deep historical roots. And a wonder of the ancient world was once destroyed, and to call it a sign of things to come would perhaps have been the winning prediction. It's one of the most famous places in the ancient world. It's sort of like the Eiffel Tower or something like that today. It was called the Temple of Artemis, and it was in modern-day Turkey, but then it was a place called Ephesus. It was created by the fabulously wealthy King Croesus of Lydia, a man credited with issuing the first proper gold coins of a set weight, perhaps the father of money is maybe the way you would describe that. His temple was designed by the Cretan architect, Charisophron, and his son, Metagenes, and is often claimed to be the first marble temple in the Greek world. This, and its impressive size, it was about 340 feet long and 180 feet wide, and had massive 40-foot pillars in front of it, earned it a place on Herodotus's list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent place. And on July 21st, 356 BC, the Temple of Artemis burns the ground in mysterious circumstances. And it's one of these sacred places, and it's typed up with, you know, Artemis, who is this god of chastity and childbirth, a sort of virginal goddess representing feminine fertility. And on this day, her temple burns down, and immediately the ancient writers and priests have to figure out an explanation of where she had gone, and they don't have to figure for very long. They know where she went. She was in a very, very specific place, actually. According to the ancient sources, this goddess had left her home to go witness the birth of Alexander II, known to us as Alexander the Great. The legend and jungle of myths that have cropped up around this new baby actually started before he was born. And if the Greek world had wondered if this mythical story was going to end sort of near where it started, well, history gave a very affirmative answer. And if the goddess Artemis did indeed leave the temple to go see the birth of Alexander, she would have just been one of many interested in the event. It was a sort of contemporary apotheosis. Now, the Webster Dictionary defines the word apotheosis as the elevation or the exaltation of a person to God's status and recognizes that for the word to make sense, some humans cross the dividing line between gods and men. It's quite the momentous event indeed. And we here in the modern world, again, look at something like that and probably have a number of reactions ranging from laughter to genuine offense at the idea that gods and humans could ever share flesh. 
But what happens in a time and place in which the cultures as they exist, even amongst the most intellectually formidable, treat this as a process of nature, sort of like we would treat the various phases of a butterfly? What happens when apotheosis is a possibility or even a rite of passage for a certain person? Furthermore, how does that kind of celestial integration work out into a philosophy of life? Are people born with parts of gods in them? Or is the process available to just anyone? And who would want to undergo that process? And what does it cost to do so? Maybe even more importantly, what does the choice to actually do so do to a person in the long haul? Now, I understand we have a lot of people, and that absolute power can corrupt absolutely. But being called a god by your friends and family isn't really absolute power. It's more like the perception of absolute potential. And thinking about what this does to a person is genuinely interesting. Alexander is born into a world of conquests, mythical hero worship, and ultimately, constant violence. He will be born alongside the skyrocketing of a power called Macedonia in the 350s BC. And this guy's father is a guy called Philip II. Before this time, Macedonia was a backwater kingdom with really no major conquests, no intellectual achievements. So if Sparta and Athens are like, you know, those are some of the other major contemporaries at this time, if Sparta and Athens are like the New York and the Los Angeles of Greece, Macedon is like the Wichita, Kansas, or Anchorage, Alaska. And then in the 360s BC, one of the young, probably 14 or 15-year-old sons of the king of this Macedon place is sent to a kingdom called Thebes as a hostage. It's this Philip II guy, this father of Alexander the Great. Pretty common thing in the ancient world, you take a son or daughter of someone you want to keep in line and you use them to ensure good behavior. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like for Putin to have a Biden or a Trump hostage. It's funny to play with. Anyways, this Thebes place is a famous city in Greece. They're known for being a warrior-type state and for having an elite infantry unit called the Sacred Band, which was supposedly a group of 300 soldiers made up of only homosexual couples. Perhaps also important to the story is that about a century before this period, Thebes was one of the great city-states of Greece that sided with the Persians in the Persian Wars. And this young man, this hostage known as Philip II, grows up watching and learning the Thebans' up-to-date new style of infantry warfare for, you know, from some of the best. He's given access to the politicians at Thebes, too, and they treat him well. And he meets and perhaps works with a guy called Epimenondas, who some historians describe as one of the best warriors in the Greek world. At a certain point, this Philip of Macedon begins to dream of going home and turning his Macedonians into a people that could rival the Thebans, and maybe not just militarily, but economically and politically. He's got big dreams. And after three or four years of this, this Philip guy is granted his wish, and he's allowed to leave Thebes with all of this new knowledge, and he's made a king of Macedon. This is a decision that the Thebans will live to regret. He will work tirelessly to update the Macedonian culture, including and up to bringing on people like Aristotle, that Aristotle, yes, the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle, who was the intellectual descendant, perhaps, of Socrates and Plato, known even at that time to be the rightful intellectual heir to the Athenian philosophical, scientific, and political tradition. Philip is thoroughly Greek, and he is known for his speaking and for his increasing consideration for the Greek gods. 
and we know a lot about him from his military engineering and generalship, which at this point was second to none in the world. Really brings a renewed vision of military vigor and a a sort of Homeric ethos back to Macedon, where there hasn't been that level of warrior culture historically. He will update the long-standing tradition of the Greek phalanx, which is a sort of tight-knit group of soldiers meant to operate as a single monolithic unit, and he does so by equipping these Macedonian units with a sarissa, which is a spear but lengthened significantly. He'll make them about 14 or 15 feet, where the other ones in the Greek world are about 6 feet long. By the way, you can say Macedonian or Macedonians. So essentially, you get these large, well-ordered, armored groups of hoplites together, and in front of them a sort of continually moving no-man's land with a pincushion at the end. He will introduce new tactics, including siege towers and arrow-shooting catapults, and over about a decade, he creates one of the most dynamic and nasty fighting forces ever seen. He will work tirelessly also to update the Macedonian culture, including an up to, like I said, bringing on people like Aristotle to work with his son and families of the nobility. And he doesn't waste any time using his new power. He first starts by subjugating non-Greeks at his borders, like Thracians and Illyrians to his rule. And then he starts going after Greek city-states. People start to take notice, and eventually Thebes and Athens will unite to stop this upstart king from the backwaters from accruing more power. And in 338 BC, Philip II will march straight towards Thebes to subject his old prison to Macedonian rule. He will be resisted by a coalition of Greek city-states, really when he makes it to Charonia, where this Philip II will rout this group of city-states with the help of the young Alexander. Remember, Alexander the Great is his son, probably around 16 or 17 at this point. The young Alexander leads a cavalry charge that supposedly might have turned an average victory into a really devastating defeat, and he probably leads this cavalry charge without a touch of the real fear many humans would feel in charging a formed unit of highly trained men with nasty cutting devices pointing directly at you and your body. And father and son will win the day, which, if you believe the sources, is good for them, as they've had a tough sort of relationship, as you can imagine, with all kinds of really nasty questions about who the real heir to Macedon might be, though it does seem that Alexander was the favorite. And he probably felt fearlessly because for these 18 years since he was born and since the temple at Artemis had burned, he was told by everyone close to him that he was descended from Zeus and Achilles. Not just family members either, Aristotle who was apparently Alexander the Great's private tutor, is said to have taught a certain Greek nationalism to him, which would have perhaps made you know, this difficult for him. But he was going to eventually conquer the whole Greek world too. And putting that into context and perspective is difficult sometimes. So it's worth asking who the 18-year-old Alexander really was. The stories of Alexander's youth are perhaps in some ways stereotypical for a noble youth, but they have some marked eccentricities. This first thing to point out is that Alexander the Great was, you know, he had one of the most terrifying and coolest mothers of the ancient world. Her name was Olympias, and she was from a people called the Molossians, who lived in the wilds of the kingdom of Epirus. Most Greeks characterize these Molossians as barbarians, but barbarian or not, this woman is incredible and fascinating and wise and treacherous and just a handful for everybody. She will play a large role in shaping Alexander as his father, Philip, isn't home too much, playing the stay-at-home mom sort of role. 
and it's she who fills the young Alexander's mind with much of his own genealogical understanding that eventually powers the monolithic ego that is coming to bloom now. She's a snake worshipper, and she's even said to have told Alexander that Zeus Amon, shapeshifter though he may be, impregnated her, and that he is the son of Zeus, who impregnated her in snake form. It's freaky. And she will set the table for Alexander to become the next big king of Macedon, maybe directly, maybe indirectly, as we're going to see. We should also point out here the kind of place that Macedon is and maybe learn how it contrasted with the other states around it. Take a place like Athens, for example. In Athens, a well-to-do boy like Alexander would come of age at 18, perhaps participate in local government, have some cheek interactions with some courtesans, do some philosophy during the evening, maybe even have some sex with the noble women. Can you imagine? You know, enjoy the parties and some storytelling and everything that the plugged-in metropolis of Athens had to offer. Macedon was an alien planet by comparison. Here are some of the rules of Macedon. One, no one can shower in warm water besides recently pregnant women. No man allowed to recline at dinner until he had killed a wild boar with a spear. Soldiers would be marked by a rope if they had yet to kill a man in open warfare. Yeah, I read that for the first time, and I thought to myself, wow, this sounds a whole lot like Sparta. And when you read about the specific time frame, you know, the 360s BC in Greece, this is the kind of thing that some of the Greeks have maybe grown out of, maybe because they threw off the yoke of the Persians in those wars. But the ethos of Macedon here is really just still ancient and Homeric, and it's meant to inculcate the traditional warrior virtues that go back, a th- you know, a thousand years in this part of the world. The kind of stuff that you would have read about as stereotypes in the Odyssey or the Iliad. One thing that stands out is that even the royal family dresses the same way as everyone else, which a couple other, there were other Greek city-states who, who did this practice, but the king's name is listed on official documents, just as, you know, if, if it was me, if he's Zeke's guy, you know, was on the document. It looks like it's engineered to sort of avoid the typical laziness that is imparted by having a dynastic class and to sort of maintain the toughness of everyone from the lowliest slave to the king. And maybe they see the toughness of the latter as even more important, kind of dispatches of some of the social hierarchies, as we might call them today. This sort of ethos will play into the story later as Alexander becomes enthralled with the new civilizations in front of him. The Athenian parties, uh, you know, if you went to a party in Athens or something, are, are more philosophical and artistic, more cheek, more music being played. The Macedonian parties sound like a different kind of fun entirely, though. You imagine some kind of party thrown at UFC headquarters with Mike Tyson as the master of ceremonies and Metallica playing with all the fighters and their wives and sons in attendance, and you're starting to get there maybe. The Macedonians will drink unmixed wine, which is considered a sort of barbarian practice. It's like if you drank, you know, only liquor today or something, or, you know, you drank only moonshine. They will get into long bouts of drinking with fighting and killing and all manner of wildness just simply par for the course. And this will infect all levels of their culture. They don't really have a cultural aristocracy we would recognize where the common folk live one way and the king lives you know, just lives differently. We're told that Philip and Alexander will drink for days on end and sometimes sleep for the preceding days. This will culminate in multiple dramatic moments, including Philip supposedly attacking Alexander and attempting to kill him. Blame it on the alcohol. But the thing that I think is most colorful and perhaps predictive of the future of Macedon is the practice of polygamy. 
polygamy is not really a popular setup in Greece at this point. It's really just the Macedonians and perhaps some borderline barbarian types, which the Greeks considered the Macedonians to be somewhat barbarian. Philip will marry seven times for strategic reasons. You know, he makes war by marriage. But the legacy here and the issue is that even, you know, it it will rear its ugly head even in his lifetime. When, you know, when Alexander is young, it's here that polygamy becomes an issue for dynastic maintenance. When you have a king who had seven wives, you could easily have 30 theoretical heirs, and that's not a great plan, especially in a place that isn't known for its law-orientedness or constitutionality. This stuff becomes a bloody struggle a lot of the time. Philip's fourth wife is this Olympias woman I was telling you about, and she is presumably the mother of the heir, Alexander, so she does have a sort of special status, at least in the beginning. But the circumstances around Alexander's birth are what get her some of the best screen time of any woman in ancient history. It's described by many ancient historians that Olympias was found having sex with a snake, just like she says, by Philip, and then becoming pregnant with Alexander sometime later. However it came about, Alexander the Great is born on that day in 356 when the Temple of Artemis burns to the ground. And they didn't have Mori back then, so we can't really test their paternities. Alexander was probably on the shorter side, with a somewhat lopsided face and bulging forehead, topped off with blonde hair. Some people said he had a high-pitched voice and sharp teeth as well. Busts and portraits you see of him show some of this, but also maybe they cleaned him up a bit. Little is known about the boy Alexander before age 14, except that he spent most of his time with his mother. He had an early teacher named Leonidas who taught him his first things about riding and fighting. Alexander is said to have remarked that he was fed a night's march for breakfast and a light meal for dinner. He even calls this Leonidas his foster father, which shows the contempt he may have had for his biological father. He will learn music, lyre specifically, at the hands of a certain Lysimachus of Arcania, and it's possibly here he learns the works of Homer, which will be sort of the template Alexander will forever see his life in, short though it may be. Reading will play a very large role in his life. He consumed history and philosophy and tragedy quite constantly, even while on campaign. But really, it's Homer's books he will keep under his pillow at night, along with a dagger. Then we get the first pronounced story from Alexander's youth, you know, somewhere around when he's 13. He's with his father, Philip. They're together at a fair or something in the capital, and a horse trader is in town with a horse. The horse costs a small fortune. It's this big, glorious black stallion. And we're told this horse is so terrifying and irascible that none of Philip's buddies even want to try to get on it. Guy, UFC fighter type dudes don't want to get on this horse, which is why when Alexander, age 13, says he will ride the horse, Philip basically says, listen, if you can get on that thing, guy, he's yours. And somehow, someway, the 13-year-old Alexander manages to climb on this thing and ride it and bring an entire family to tears watching this. The horse's name is Bucephalus, and this horse will be with him for almost two decades. Now, is the story true? It's hard to believe that a bunch of cavalry commanders and seasoned warriors were unable to mount a horse that a 13-year-old boy could. It's even harder to imagine that the Thessalian horse trader was unaware of what could be done to tame the very expensive animal he brought for that exact purpose. But I wonder sometimes about the story, and I think with something like a horse, especially with something that can be so potentially injurious, you know, something kids are maybe happier to take a little risk with sometimes. You notice they have that connection with animals. Who knows what the truth is? I'm sure it's possible that there's at least a kernel of truth to the story. And sometime after this, Philip decides it's time for Alexander to get an elite education. 
the former king of Mastodon, Amyntas III, had an effective doctor who had a son who we've already talked about called Aristotle. And so it came to be that the greatest philosopher and really scientist of the age was now Alexander the Great's personal tutor. And in the gardens of Midas, on the slopes of Mount Vermion in Greece, Aristotle begins to teach biology, ethics, literature, mathematics, medicine, philosophy, and zoology to Alexander. It's like Stephen Hawking being the personal tutor to a young Steve Jobs or something. Alexander will show a special attraction to philosophy, and he will consume a lot of it and go out of his way to fund philosophy and spare great philosophers, including a guy called Diogenes and a famous incident. Alexander will eventually repay Aristotle in other ways, besides his dad's copious silver and gold, of course. He will eventually send back samples of flora and animal life to his old tutor, who will compile them in his Historia Animalium, which was a sort of early work in zoology and animal cataloging. Now, there's some significant tensions that are emerging here between student and pupil, and some of them are maybe crucial for understanding not just the snapshot of history, but arguably how much of history has transpired since. Aristotle will teach a certain Greek exceptionalism to Alexander. We might call it racism today. This idea was that the Greeks were not just the best warriors, which was a claim that certainly had its merits, but that Greece had a sort of responsibility to spread their philosophical and artistic culture to the rest of the world and rule over the others, who in Aristotle's mind had a sort of degenerate culture. And it's worth mentioning that initially, it certainly seems like Alexander is willing to take this lesson to heart, but as time goes on, it becomes clear that Alexander wishes to sort of incorporate into a multicultural world, even going so far as to embrace the customs of many of the Asian kingdoms he conquers. It's fair to wonder how this evolution happens, but one of the positive effects is the explosion of mathematics and science that came with the collaboration between the two distant cultures of the West and the East. We may well have Alexander to thank for that. There's a claim made by Plutarch, a writer from a later period here, that Aristotle tried to have the young Alexander killed. The story's widely discredited, but that it is related casts a certain shadow upon what's to come here. That, combined with the fact that Aristotle is said to have given Alexander a special annotated version of the Iliad when he's recalled back to the capital, certainly suggests that at least during childhood, teacher and pupil remained on pretty good terms. Alexander will return to the capital at Pella and undertake some military tasks for his father, Philip, who is now attempting to create an allegiance of Greek city-states for a potential invasion of Persia. Philip will call the first official meeting of what's known as the League of Corinth in the spring of 337 and make clear his vision. Now let's put this into context. This is more than a hundred years after the end of the Persian Wars, where the Greeks sort of pushed the Persians out of Greece after several famous battles with enormous costs to the Greeks, including the burning of several major city-states. The Athenians will sign a treaty with a guy called Artaxerxes, you know, who's a Persian who swears to stay out of Greece. A few years go by, and the Greeks, of course, start fighting amongst themselves again, and Persia will support some Greek city-states against other Greek city-states. You know, one time they support Sparta against Athens, and slowly the consensus in Greece becomes that after this, Persia is going to try to involve itself again. And now in 337, Philip has all these potentially legitimate-looking reasons for why we should go have it out with the Persians once and for all. All kinds of reasons are speculated as to why Philip himself, why he actually wanted this. But the one that rings the truest, at least for Philip, is monetary. 
He needs money badly. He practiced a, a rolling economy, and the potential for a major score could not have been something far from mind. Now, later in 337, Philip decides it's time to take another wife. He's got, all, he's got a couple already, but it's time to take one more. And he marries a woman called Cleopatra. No relation, but it's important to point out that Cleopatra is a Greek name. The Cleopatra you know is actually a Macedonian, not an Egyptian. I guess I can't say for sure she's not related, but I'm going to go ahead and guess she's not. She, she is the niece of a powerful baron in Macedon called Attalus. And this Attalus guy was very influential, and this was a good thing for him too. And, you know, she's young and she's pretty, and apparently... Philip II, who normally marries for political and you know, terra firma reasons, is in love with this woman. And as you can imagine, that incenses the already very fiery Olympias, his previous wife and Alexander's mother. This woman, this, this Cleopatra that he is now marrying, is a Macedonian woman, full-blooded Macedonian, which means the heir potentially produced by her and Philip could be a true Macedonian. Alexander, if you remember, was the son of Olympias, who was a Molossian, and Philip, who was a Macedonian, which meant his blood was not pure. This Cleopatra, then, was potentially the mother of a more qualified future king, you know? It's good to have that on your resume, that you're the full-blooded heir. At the banquet for this marriage, Olympias and Alexander both in attendance, the father of the bride and this new Attalus give a toast. He says something like, let the gods will it that you shall produce a legitimate heir for Macedon. And Alexander loses it. He screams at this Attalus guy, perhaps draws his sword, demands an apology, and Attalus says, nope, not going to apologize. He will turn to his father and demand a forced apology from Attalus, and then Philip sort of tells his son to sit down and relax. Alexander refuses, and Philip gets up, takes his sword out, and charges Alexander, only to fall flat on his face drunk. And Alexander is said to have tersely remarked here, the man who would cross from Greece to Asia cannot seem to cross from table to table. And this is the point at which things really start to decay between Alexander and his father, Philip. Philip will start arranging more marriages to craft more strategic alliances, and Alexander will get in the way of one of these. Philip will start banishing some of Alexander's friends from Macedon, who Alexander will nobly defend and save. But after a lot of this goes on, Philip has sort of secured a lot of allegiances, and at age 46, he's now taken Macedonia from a backwater to certainly a premier power in Greece, if not the premier power in Greece. Very few city-states have a siege train or a ground army that can challenge him at this point in the game. Then, one day, Philip is hosting an athletic game in Greece. He will, in a crowded stadium of people dressed in all white, move into the center of a cheering crowd without his usual bodyguard to sort of show he's a man of the people. And after a few moments, a member of the bodyguard charges him and stabs him. He dies. This assassin, this Pausanias who stabs and runs away to get to the getaway vehicle, which is a horse, and he's caught by other members of the bodyguard and killed. Alexander is surrounded by his friends who wonder if maybe he's next. And pandemonium sort of completely ensues here, and Alexander is proclaimed in this moment to be the new king of Macedon. Now, it's one of the most controversial assassinations in the ancient world, but the official story from Alexander is that this Pausanias guy is a disgruntled ex-lover of Philip. Plutarch, who wrote on the topic, points the figure actually at Alexander's mother, Olympias, 
as she and Philip did not get along and his assassination solidified Alexander's place as king. There are some who pointed to a sort of aristocratic conspiracy inside the Macedonian court that was weary of Philip's increasingly growing family, but to me, if the story of Attalus's slights towards Alexander are true, it's Alexander and Olympias in my mind who really stood to benefit the most. Whatever the case, the 19-year-old Alexander is now the king of Macedon, and he has the most dangerous army in the world at his disposal. So a lot of these previously subject people are looking at these facts and they're seeing that this Philip guy is dead and they don't know too much about his son. They know maybe he led the cavalry charge, he's got some sharp teeth and a loud, squeaky voice. Barbarian people on the borders like the Illyrians and the Thracians and even Greek city-states like Athens and Thebes openly praise the assassin who killed Philip and they'll expel the Macedonian garrisons from their city for some perspective, there's a guy called Demosthenes in Athens who six days before Philip is assassinated has his own daughter die. And he too is just celebrating that this guy, this Philip, has been killed. But the celebrations and the rebellions are going to be short-lived. What these rebelling peoples do not understand is that Alexander has now inherited a brilliant army, loyal generals, and his father's characteristic speed and focus. He has Attalus killed and gets rid of anyone with a halfway claim to the Macedonian throne or anyone with any leverage put away. And then it's time for him to quell some serious Greek rebellions. He will march into Thessaly and outflank a force of Thessalians that surrenders basically without a fight. And then, then, you know, that's a good plan against Alexander because he's known to be merciful to surrendered enemies, which is also a good plan for him because it's less fighting for everyone. The Thessalians will make him the archon of their state, and that goes without a hitch. He will then make his way to Thermopylae, or the so-called Hot Gates, which is a place you may have heard of. It's where those 300 Spartans stood up to the great king Xerxes in the Persian Wars. Probably a pretty important event in Alexander's mind. Now, in the spring of 335, his foreign campaigns begin. The first thing to deal with is some of these barbarian tribes, who, since they don't have really the same kind of centralized rule, they kind of manifest little mini-threats all the time, but occasionally they're big enough to block a, a trade route and whatever else, and one of these tribes doing this right now is called the Thracians. Alexander will confront a force of Thracians, by all means, some pretty scary, nasty barbarian types. He will find these Thracians along a pass in their own country, and look, while, while these bar- barbarians, they're, they're maybe not great at pitched battles, they're always good at using terrain to their advantage. It's what happens when you know your country and your enemy doesn't. And this force of Thracians pushes down like a ton of like wagons, maybe burning or with sharp objects, down this narrow pass at Alexander's army. And these chariots come careening down at Alexander's. Now, if this wasn't a Greek army or one with a kind of battlefield discipline Philip had engendered, this would have been a disaster. But Alexander just sort of slyly orders his men to create a vertical shield wall, placing their shields above their heads and locking them together to form a sort of road of shields. And the chariots pass right above Alexander's army, completely sparing his army. They then break the shield wall and attack the army above, killing thousands and taking women and children as slaves back to Macedon. A lot of people found out about that story and thought it was incredible. He will build rafts to cross into fortified areas surrounded by water, and he will starve out a tribe called the Tribali, and generally show that his strategic brilliance was nothing to be trifled with. Now, those people called the Thebans revolt and expel the Macedonian garrison. And this is the same Thebans that Philip was once a prisoner of. This is a culture and a people that Alexander actually has a lot of respect for. 
and it's actually easy to see why it got out of control. The Thebans are, you know, they're respected by Alexander for some reasons you could predict. They're a Greek people with a storied military history, and they remember Alexander's father um, from, you know, not so long ago. In recent memory, Alexander's father lived in Thebes. There were probably some who remember the situation, and his father, Philip, learned warfare from the Thebans. But Thebes, despite their epic military history, which, to, to be completely clear, the, the Theban hoplites and phalanx are right there, right up there with the Spartans. But they also sided with Xerxes, the king of Persia in the Persian Wars. And I'm going to guess Alexander's the type of guy with a long memory, even though this happened well before his birth. It's sort of like if the Canadians had sided with the Japanese in the Second World War. We have to remember here that Aristotle taught a certain Greek exceptionalism to Alexander, so this must have been an extremely difficult thing for him to do, but Alexander will burn Thebes to the ground, and he will sell every man, woman, and child into slavery. It's an unbelievably brutal moment, and it put the rest of the Greek world on notice, including Athens, who submit now to the new king, who is showing that he is just as talented and brutal as his father. And now Greece is for the most part under the control of Alexander, was quickly showing that he is indeed Alexander the Great and not just Alexander II. And he will quell a few more internal enemies before returning to the Macedonian capital at Pella to begin preparations for the Asian expedition, which looks like it's 100% going to happen at this point. The moment has come for Persia to atone for their aggressions into Greece, or just to satisfy the ego of one man, take your pick, guess it could be both. Now, I say this planning started then, but truthfully, Alexander had thought about Persia his entire life realistically. He would have read Herodotus's histories, which covered much of those Persian wars, and talks about Persia a lot. He will also read a guy called Xenophon, who wrote an account of Greek mercenaries in Persia. I heard one historian say that Alexander would have never been great if Xenophon had never been. Some potentially world-altering decisions happen here as well, right around this time, right before Alexander leaves. Now, Alexander's sexuality is a taboo topic even today, and it's hard to get to exactly what was going on in his love life. But when he's making preparations for this invasion, a guy called Parmenion, who is a leftover from his dad, a well-tried commander, and sort of the voice of reason maybe in the room, tells him he needs to have an heir now in case he dies over in Persia. And Alexander does not do this. So when he dies about 12 years later... Macedon has no heirs, and the leading figures in his administration fight over everything and tear it to pieces. It's a little like America falling apart after the Second World War. It's one of the greatest geographical political consolidations in world history, and it ends with absolute pandemonium, and we're going to get to all of that. Some people think Alexander was actually sexless, like he didn't, he didn't want to have sex. It's said that during Alexander's childhood that Philip hires a prostitute to get Alexander interested in girls, and that fails. Either way, in the spring of 334, Alexander is off to march the 300 miles from Pella to Cestus, making for what the Greeks called the Hellespont and what we today call the Dardanelles. He will gather troops from all over the place and will make his way straight to a boat to cross the small patch of water between Europe and Asia, preparing for these Persian conquests. And the world will never be the same again. Now, everything that happens here has been debated for a long time. And one of the problems is that We've had mostly Greek sources dealing with this campaign. There are now some documents emerging from the East, including some military documents that are useful. Alexander had every interest and 
sort of had the characteristics of a person who would want the sources to say what he wanted. A common source that historians will use today is called Arian. Arian is writing hundreds of years after Alexander died, though, and he's working from primary sources that existed from Alexander's lifetime in his time. They don't exist anymore. He compares the sources and sort of synthesizes all of them into one account. Arian talks about the religious rites that Alexander takes here and Alexander's tendency to gravitate to a sort of Homeric ethos. Quote, One account says that Hephaestion laid a wreath on the tomb of Patroclus, another that Alexander laid one on the tomb of Achilles, calling him a lucky man, and that he had Homer to proclaim his deeds and preserve his memory. And well might Alexander envy Achilles this piece of good fortune, for in his own case there was no equivalent. His one failure, the single break, as it were, in the long chain of his successes, was that he had no worthy chronicler to tell the world of his exploits. End quote. So you can see here Alexander is really trying to set him up, himself up as sort of being Achilles, and he's literally envious of Achilles. Part of this apotheosis thing it, that's so wonderful in this world where you believe in living gods and that humans can become living gods is that if you want it for yourself, the, the divine really becomes the terrestrial and the impossible becomes the potential. And here, Arian kind of tells you exactly why he wrote this book. And, you know, I think this, this is really powerful here because Arian clearly felt that this was one of the, the greatest deeds he could have done. Quote, No matter who I am that makes this claim, I need not declare my name, though it is by no means unheard of in the world. I need not specify my country and family or any official position I may have held. Rather, let me say this, that this book of mine is and has been from my youth more precious than country, and kin, and public advancement. Indeed, for me, it is these things. And that is why I venture to claim the first place in Greek literature, since Alexander, about whom I write, held first in the profession of arms. End quote. Who this writer thinks he is and who he thinks Alexander is. He says this is more important than his family, than his career. It's incredible. And, you know... It really leads us to want to think about what the wider context of this war might have been and why this is a meaningful event to someone hundreds of years later. So let's talk about these people, the Persians, for a moment. The Persian Empire at this time stretched from modern Bulgaria to Pakistan and as far south as Egypt. Their king is entitled a King of Kings with a capital K, and this King of Kings had divided these lands into 20 satrapies, which were sort of independent regions with a leader that would answer to the king, the great king, king of kings, king of land, by the will of Ahura Mazda, as the ancient Persians would have thought, ruled from several royal capitals that were interconnected by an excellent system of roadways, one which ran about 1,600 miles. The supply routes of the empire are so efficient that Alexander will make a point of capturing them and using them for himself whenever possible. The wealth of the Persians is legendary, and so was the king's practice of holding a harem of 365 women. Being a king in Persia is a totally different thing than being one in a Greek city-state, and Alexander will find that out. But just as in Greece, the king is responsible for both the administrative duties and the military ones, which means that this king is expected to be out there on the battlefield should it ever come to that. And the current king is Darius, and he probably gets word about Alexander right around the time he's leaving Greece. Alexander will reach the Persian side of this Hellespont, right? remember that's that small body of water that separates Europe from Asia, and he will accept the submission of some Ionian Greeks who are glad to see him for the most part. They're living over there. And the Persians will get a report about this Alexander situation, and they've got mixed opinions about how to deal with him. 
There's one guy, he's called Memnon, and he's an ex-Greek mercenary who sort of hooks up with the Persians and recognizes the nastiness of the Alexandrian coalition. And he tells the Persians that they should basically burn all their stuff and starve Alexander while sending an army to Macedon to hit them at home. But as you can imagine, the Persians don't like this, and they decide that they want to meet Alexander in open combat. And as you can imagine, that's not a good idea. One of the satraps of Persia is sent off to meet Alexander and this nasty Macedonian army at a place called the Granicus River. Alexander will show up to this place with about, you know, 20,000, maybe 25,000 soldiers consisting of about with about 12,000 infantry, at, you know, 20, 20 to 25,000 total, but about 12,000 heavy infantry and about maybe 4,000 light cavalry and 5,000 heavy cavalry. The core of this army is that nasty Macedonian infantry with the long pike spears. It's designed to absorb a frontal charge. Alexander would have been riding with a cavalry in a unit designed to expose enemy weak points. He's got Parmenian on his left side, on one side of this river, who's got some Greek and Thracian infantry and cavalry, and Philotas has a companion cavalry next to Alexander. They will reach this place, the Granicus River, and it's a sunken river beneath these steep banks. They will get to this river, and they will see an army being led by a Persian called Spithridates. That army will consist of about 20,000 infantry, of which four to 6,000 are actually Greek mercenaries. It will also have about 20,000 cavalry with some normal light cavalry and cataphracts, and a cataphract is a sort of heavily armored horse. So it's maybe the army is maybe he's outnumbered two to one, probably a little less, maybe right around two to one. They'll have this Memnon guy that's that Greek mercenary on the left with the Persians with some Greek mercenaries, and the Spithridates guy will have cavalry and infantry in the center. Persian force did not have crack-heavy infantry, but for all the weaknesses there, the core of this army is actually fiercely tough cavalry. Those four to 6,000 Greek mercenaries stay in the rear in a sort of defensive reserve. Alexander's out there staring at this river, talking with his other generals, and you can just feel this creeping through the sources. It's impossible for Alexander to wait. He can't do it. It's a horrible position he's in, though. Really, really not a good idea to cross this. And I think probably most of the command of his Macedonian army rolled up to this river and thought of a potential downstream crossing where you sort of go to another part of the river, maybe at night, and you bring your army across, and then you sneak up behind the enemy. But Alexander will order his army across the river immediately. One of his generals, Parmenian, will strongly advise against this. To be honest, I strongly advise against this. This is a terrible idea. And he is just walking directly into a bowfire army across a river. It must have looked like insanity to anyone with any experience, but Alexander needed to be portrayed in Homeric terms, and this is how you do that. You do the crazy thing. Alexander gets into the river with his horse Bucephalus there with armor and is ecstatically crossing this river. He's excited. He cannot wait for this. Arrows are raining down everywhere. They're totally submerged in water. Many of these horses are going down. Some are drowning. The Persians are shooting down at this first attack from the high ground, and they must be feeling like they lucked out. The Macedonians reach the bank of the river, though. They start climbing the sides, and the Persians engage the Macedonians by hand. Persian spears and lances flow quickly into the ascent up the riverbanks, and the long Macedonian spears begin to step towards the heights. Alexander's men are suffering severely here. It's really not obvious that this was a great idea. 
They're also fighting the Greek part of this Persian army under that Greek commander Memnon, which means the hand-to-hand fighting is intense, and perhaps against a similarly equipped force. Alexander, leading one side of the charge, apparently, starts to climb the embankment on the Persian side. The first batch of troops reaching the Persian side of the river are cut down, but now Alexander himself is in the thick of this river and close to making it to the other side. And a few moments later, Alexander the Great is now in the thick of the fighting on the Persian side of this river, invigorating his army and renewing their courage as they begin to turn the tide. And more of the Macedonian cavalry, seeing their king engaged, move across the Granicus at a dizzying pace. They've now prevented the archers on the Persian side of the river from shooting and raiding that arrow fire on the crossing army. The Macedonians have now crossed the riverbank, and they are on the other side, and they have made it here in a death-defying maneuver. The fighting here is gruesome. Alexander fights and fights, and at a certain point, his spear is broken. He will ask a companion for a spear, but this companion is already fighting with the broken remains of his own spear. He will get a spear from one of his personal bodyguards, and with the new weapon in hand, he will see Mithridates, the great king's son-in-law. He will chase down this Mithridates and bring him down with a spear. But now another Persian, a certain Rosakes, charges Alexander and hits him directly on the head, causing some damage, but Alexander gets up. And then this Spithridates, the leader of the whole Persian force, raises his scimitar and is about halfway down to cutting down Alexander from behind. But Clytus, one of Alexander's bodyguards, is able to chop this guy's arm off with the scimitar in hand and save Alexander right there in the thick of things. One of Alexander's generals, Parmenian, will now get his portion of the army across the river and makes its way up to the west bank to face the mercenary Greek infantry and Persian troops who have only some light javelins. The Persians start getting torn apart by the better-led and well-ranked Macedonian infantry, and they flee the field. Alexander is now only facing off against fellow Greek mercenaries, and he's furious at these men who have betrayed the interests of Greece. The commander of these Greek mercenaries, Memnon, sends a plea to Alexander for mercy. Alexander refuses and slays 18,000 of these mercenaries. It's an incredibly bloody, treacherous way to announce yourself on enemy soil, and with this, Alexander has won his first battle on Persian soil. Numbers here are crazy. It's almost hard to read them off. Aristobulus says Alexander kills 20,000 enemy infantry and 2,500 cavalry and lost 34 dead himself. That's incredible. I can't believe that, but I can believe this was a wipeout victory for the king of Macedon, who is now dispatched of just a local army, but still. This battle is the beginning of the end for the Achaemenid Persian Empire, though. We also have to look at some of the sheer testimony towards Alexander's behavior here. It's terrifying. People point that out, and Alexander gets annoyed at them, by the way. Arian says at a certain point of Alexander's battlefield actions, quote, I would guess that Alexander's annoyance was because he recognized the truth of the accusation and his own responsibility in incurring it. Yet the fact is that in battle, he was a berserker, as addicted to glory as men are to any other overpowering passion, and he lacked the discipline to keep himself out of danger. End quote. Now, he's the king of this giant league of Greek city-states, and he's out there absolutely pushing the pace of this battle. It's clear that if Alexander had read Homer, which we know he did, He's more interested in being Achilles than Agamemnon. But it's a distressing thing in some ways for his fellow countrymen who are probably on some level aware that he's a man and he can be killed. And they're right to worry about that fact because he has no heir, no obvious successor, and this in the end will actually cause calamity. They're really right to be worried here. 
but this also consistently inspired his men, and it's something that truthfully sets the guy apart. How much of this conduct should we really accept as being the facts? Certainly there's propaganda in here. But it would be a bridge too far to deny that Alexander was brave and presumed a spot at the literal head of the Macedonian spear. This was not someone who just liked conquest. He liked conquering, and he liked being in the middle of a battle and saw this as his duty to himself and his people. Alexander will now visit his own dead and treat them as heroes. He will send a dedication back to Athens that said, Alexander, son of Philip, and all the Greeks except the Spartans won these spoils of war from the barbarians living in Asia. Sparta was a holdout from the Alexandrian conquest, and Alexander liked rubbing it in their face. Oh yeah, he also sent 300 panoplies to Athens to give this proclamation, which is quite the specific number, to say the least. It's a final blow to the collective ego of Sparta, which, if you believe the ancient sources, is having a hard time paying the bills and staying afloat at all. Alexander will now start consolidating and organizing some of the power structures in the region. He will have Parmenia go to a place called Deshalem. He'll send a few of his guys to become satraps of some of the regions that are now under his control. And he will use the Persians' own travel and supply lines to do all this. And it's just like he uses and inherits those. You know, he doesn't really restructure the administrative protocols. He just sort of puts his guys into the positions that the Persians have sort of historically had as governors, right? Those are the satraps. He will get all sorts of submissions of local peoples, and he will have a new statue of himself commissioned. And things are going quite well for a while until he gets the word that 400 Persian ships are racing down the coast towards the powerful city of Miletus, where there is a formidable commander hanging out known as Hegesistratus. He has to deal with it immediately. It threatens his baggage train and his communications. So Alexander will march to this Miletus place, and he will have a navy about half the size of the Persians kind of shadowing him. He gets there before the Persian ships, where one of his generals, Parmenian, urges him to fight the Persians at sea. Alexander oddly turns this down, actually citing the superior seamanship of the Phoenician and Cyprian navy, and that's really what this Persian fleet is, actually. The, the Persians sort of hired subsidiaries for many things, and naval power is one of the things they outsourced a lot. He will pretty easily take the city of Miletus, though, and he will treat the civilian population well, but he will execute the military leadership, which is sort of his M.O. He will then dispatch of his navy entirely, telling Parmenian, we don't need it. And he'll just start of sort of methodically taking cities on the coast where it would be ideal to park, you know, ships. And this initially works, but it will backfire a little down the line. Then comes the city of Halicarnassus, which is a famous city. Herodotus, the writer of the histories, which is probably the most famous piece of ancient literature at this time, besides, you know, the Odyssey or the Iliad, was from this place. It's a cultured city with a massive defensive wall, you know, six-foot defensive walls on top of, which are fortified battlements and a series of high towers. Below all of this is a moat, which is about 40 feet wide, beyond which is the city and two citadels. There's also a harbor, which Alexander can't really block since his fleet's gone. It's a high-value target, and Alexander wants to take it, and the Persians desperately want to keep it. And you can tell because the great king isn't taking any chances with the current satrap, who's a guy called Orientabates. He puts our old friend Memnon of Rhodes in charge. Better to fight a Greek when you have a Greek. He's that Greek mercenary who was proven right for saying we shouldn't really be fighting Alexander in a pitched battle. Now, Alexander will get to this place, and he will immediately attack the northern wall, and that will immediately get pushed back. 
And this frustrates Alexander, who now orders up some siege engines, and he will start to pelt boulders at this wall. It starts breaking, but Memnon will have his men repair this wall very quickly, in real time. This goes on a little while, and one night Memnon sends out a small contingent of these defenders, and they will kill hundreds of Alexander's men in some brutal night fighting that sends a further chill up the spine of the besiegers. They do not want to give up this city. They know what's at stake here. Memnon does. And Alexander's men are not doing so well with this, actually. It may feel like defeat, and they weren't so used to defeat. And they're maybe getting a little emotional now, and you know, because a few of them get drunk and try to climb up this wall at night. Talk about hold my beer, bro. They will be shot with burning arrows, and Alexander will be forced to make a brief truce with the enemy just so he could bury his men. This alcohol thing with the Macedonians really, it's just perpetual. And you can see here that putting a Greek general in charge of Halicarnassus was a winning move. Memnon has more tricks up his sleeve, too. We get to see some rather brilliant strategic generalship from this guy here. He's pretty great. He will handpick 2,000 elite infantry for a special action. He'll send out uh, 1,000 of them to sort of stealthily light fire to the siege engines, and will leave 1,000 also in wait at the west side of the city, sort of waiting for the Macedonians to respond, and they ambush these responding Macedonians. Unfortunately, the Macedonians bring a larger force over and beat this attack back badly, and many of these attackers will rush back to the city to Memnon, who's not so happy about that. Memnon and Orontiobates set fire to the city and leave on some ships. Alexander gets in, and now he has taken a major prize of the Persian Empire. This is looking like a good first down for Alexander. He allows his men to go home and see their wives. This happens, and then he takes more submissions. There's perhaps a plot to assassinate him. And he makes his way to a place called Gordium, where there's a very famous item called the Gordium Knot. It was there because a man named Gordius had set out from Macedon in the 8th century BC, and at this place had founded the Phrygian dynasty. His son Midas, yes, that Midas, had dedicated Gordius's um, knot to Zeus and the wagon that it was on to Zeus. And the wagon was famous because the knot was fastened to it, and it was made of wood tied in such an intricate manner that the ends could not be seen. And there was a sort of prophecy that whoever untied this knot would become king of all Asia. And Alexander shows up at this knot where I imagine other people had tried a more sportsmanlike approach to untying it, you know, with their hands or maybe some pliers. And he just kind of pulls out his sword and chops it in half. But he's got problems down in the Aegean anyways. This is not going to spare him from everything, even though there's a lot of excitement about the fact that he did that. Memnon, that Greek general who went all Persian, has been rather brilliantly pushing back some of these Macedonian gains using a fleet. He uses the sheer size of his fleet to convince some recent Alexandrian converts, including the island of Chios, to sort of revert back to Persian allegiance status. He starts making his way to mainland Greece, and maybe there's going to be a counterattack on the homeland. This goes on for a while until Memnon manages to get himself killed trying to put a place called Mytilene under siege. He's replaced by a family member called Pharnabazus, who also does a good job reigning in some of these places, and eventually he will take back Mytilene. And when this happens, the word gets out, and a lot more of them rebel, including Miletus, who Alexander just converted like a second ago. So they're rebelling against Alexander now. Pharnabazus gets really aggressive here. He will sort of cordon off some important places at the Hellespont, even bring his navy in striking distance of Greece. He 
You also do what these Persians are so good at and support other Greek city-states to destabilize the Greek coalition. In this case, it's Sparta who he supports, and that will eventually manifest in a Spartan attempt to overthrow Macedon. Now, Alexander's strategy of abandoning his fleet backfires right, right here. He has to reassemble a new one, and this is a pain. He will restore some of his communication lines cut off by Pharnabazus, hire some mercenaries back home to deal with what's now a full-scale Spartan rebellion, which sounds like terrifying, but Sparta is not what she once was at this point. This actually is something he can deal with. It seems like Darius, the king of Persia, did not take lightly Alexander's cutting of the Gordium Knot. He will have people send in troops from all over the empire to deal with Alexander, and that allows Alexander to take some more small cities and really operate his sea forces. And he's really leaving his mark here right now. He will set up democracy in a lot of these places, getting rid of pro-Persians, really setting them up as Greek colonies in some ways politically. But at this point, Alexander has a lot of momentum. He will perhaps let his wits get away from him when he jumps into the icy river Sidness with his armor on. You'll be dragged out of this river and come out with full-on tropical fever and almost die. A week goes by and Alexander's condition just worsens. His doctor prepares him a potion finally. He will get a letter right before he drinks this potion, apparently that he should be wary of an assassination attempt. But he drinks this potion anyways and gets better, which shows he hasn't yet developed the trust issues on the magnitude we will see from him later on. Darius gets word of Alexander's bad condition, and he gets his visors all together, and they tell him that he's got to confront Alexander in person now. With one notable holdout, however, a guy called Chiridemus, who's a Greek and says that basically the Persians aren't well suited for this fight. Darius has that guy killed, and he starts marching his army towards the west where Alexander is, and he stops in Babylon and other places along the way to build up his force. Both sides start scoping out potential locations for this next battle. Alexander gets himself into a mountain pass where he expects Darius to sort of come at him directly. But Darius has other plans. He's with his wife and kids, and uh, they're taking the scenic route? In a brilliant move, Darius marches his army to the north around the mountain range that Alexander is camped in, all the way to a city Alexander set up as a supply center, not well guarded. Darius manages to kill some advanced scouts of Alexander's armies and sort of outflank Alexander and cut off his supply that was coming from Isis, which is that city, I-S-S-U-S, not Isis, like the I-S-I-S. He manages to put Alexander in an extremely bad position, and he's got to make some changes before deploying troops. Alexander is shocked, to say the least. He's been outflanked, and he has to rouse his troops a lot to get them ready for what's coming here. They'll find themselves at the plain outside Isis, on a two-mile-wide stretch between the Mediterranean Sea and the Amanus mountain range. Alexander will take his probably 40,000-man army and stick it out at a place called the Pillar of Jonah. Darius, with his reportedly 250,000-man army, will make camp below. It's a huge discrepancy in force, and you get the feeling that Alexander's men are probably terrified, but I also can't help but feel that this is exactly what Alexander wanted. Also, I think probably the numbers here a little exaggerated. I think it, it makes sense to think that the Persian force here is, you know, really, really great. But you will see numbers that range from 100,000 to 200,000. In the worst case scenario, Alexander is probably outnumbered about 5 to 1. In the best case scenario, he's in outnumbered 2 or 3 to 1. At daybreak... Alexander marches out in a large column, with infantry in front and cavalry behind. They continue as a single column for a while, and then disciplinedly 
formed the long battle formation sideways. So it's like they, they came out in a pencil kind of shaped forward, and then they slowly become a horizontal line. Darius gets word of Alexander's full deployment and starts sending skirmishers up to the front of this line. Darius, the king of kings, is in the center of this Persian army, surrounded with a royal bodyguard called the Immortals. Off to the left, he has some Greek infantry. He's got some mixed Achaemenid Persian cavalry and some mounted skirmishers on a hill behind him. Alexander's main battle line is six brigades of phalangites led by an assortment of his best generals. To the left is Cretan archers and some hypospasis, and Alexander is with them on that side, on the left, with some archers and Thessalian cavalry fleshing that out. The first thing that happens is that Alexander has some of his skirmishers go out and deal with that force lurking on the right of the field behind some hills. They will run back to the Persian lines, this force. He will then order a slow advance, Alexander will, towards the main body of the Persian army. He halts briefly, attempting to bait the Persian king Darius out, but the king doesn't fall for this. Alexander will get into the front of his army, explain the harm that the Persians have done to the Greeks since time immemorial. And at that moment, Darius's cavalry and Alexander's wings charge at each other. Alexander in the center charges the Persian center moments later. Now Alexander, the warrior king of Macedon, is doing some great damage to the right side of this Persian army. Without slowing, he quickly charges his way through a line of archers and infantrymen. But on the left side, one of Alexander's generals is badly outnumbered and quickly in a bad way. He's surrounded by the Persian cavalry. But in the center, he has problems too. The rough terrain here is throwing the well-ordered units of Macedonian infantry out of line. And Darius's archers and infantrymen are having a field day with that. And then the Macedonian infantry makes contact with the mercenary Greek infantry on the Persian side. Mercenaries are able to break the coherently ranked Macedonians, and this Macedonian center is forced to retreat. This doesn't look like a good situation for Alexander. But one of Alexander's generals, a certain Ptolemy, manages to keep the line steady and fills in the gaps. Alexander, on the other hand, has now completely dismembered the Persian forces on his side, and he races around the battlefield and manages to get behind the center of this Persian army. This relieves a significant amount of pressure in the front and allowed the Macedonian front to reorganize. And then, on the right, Alexander sees gold. It's the King Darius, and in true Homeric fashion, he charges immediately at Darius. They start hacking through some Persian cavalry who were placed to protect Darius, and with, you know, within a short time, his most elite units are now charging towards this guy, this King of Persia, this, this Darius the King. And right at the moment of confrontation, a second chariot is brought up to Darius, this great King of Kings, and he will charge and charge and charge, but not into any army. He will charge and charge and charge as fast as he can right off this battlefield. He flees on this chariot, and this Persian army just melts away. Alexander will order that Darius is chased until he gets word that another part of his army may need some help. He will reorganize there and start chasing down the fleeing Persian force when he gets the chance, issuing orders of no mercy to the enemy. More Persians will die in the retreat than in the battle of itself, which is actually quite common. 100,000 Persians will die, and Alexander will lose about 1,000 in this process. Now, there's a lot of slander in the Greek sources about this moment. Darius will not only flee this battlefield, he will leave his wife and kids there for Alexander to snatch up. 
Some historians will say that Darius leaving his family here shows that this wasn't an act of cowardice and that he thought that maybe the empire couldn't survive if he personally didn't. But it's hard not to see that Darius is a coward here. And I'm sure it would not have escaped the strategic mind of Alexander, who now is very aware of his adversary's psychological inferiority complex. Now, there's actually a mosaic actually depicting the exact situation that was discovered in the House of Fawn at Pompeii about 200 years ago. It shows Alexander charging Darius with both of their eyes on each other. Clearly, the news of this event was spread far and wide and perhaps flushed out a stereotypical dichotomy between Greek and Persian warriorhood that still has its adherence today. Alexander will raid the Persian tent, and there will be some real perspective in this moment. Alexander is a king who has spent his whole life as royalty. But when he goes into this tent, it's a sort of alien land of luxury even to him. He's said to have remarked, so this is what it's like to be a king, which probably presents another Persian-Greek dichotomy around luxury. The Greeks were a comparatively poor people, and this stuff of having, you know, hundreds of concubines in a moving sort of mobile palace boggled the minds of many of them. And then Alexander comes across Darius's wife and children. They're extremely upset, obviously, but Alexander sends one of his commanders to let them know that, you know, Darius is alive, your father and your, your husband is alive. He treated them with dignity as befitted them and told them that his war was against Darius, not his family. He will arrange for them to learn Greek and find worthy marriages for the women and the uh, children. There's a famous story of Darius's wife coming to Alexander's tent and greeting Alexander's friend Hephaestion, thinking he was Alexander, as Alexander was the shorter of the two. And they all sort of laugh at her. And Hephaestion said, I'm not Alexander. He is. This woman, this queen, freaks out and thinks she's in big trouble and she's going to get her head cut off or something. And Alexander just sort of coolly smiles and says, don't worry, Hephaestion is an Alexander too. It's a cool way to be. Now, all of this stuff could be just kindness, but if you're trying to set up the continuity of rule here, this is actually the right plan. Make it so you're just surgically excising this one guy, Darius, and the rest is just going to be exactly the same as it was before, and that's actually a pretty good plan. But it's also possible Alexander fell in love with this queen and really just did this stuff because it kept with his dignity. But Darius, the king, was just fled this battlefield, is not happy with the situation, and he starts offering Alexander deals. And some of this stuff is, I, I you just hope that this is really, really what happened because it's so emotional and at the same time so cynical and self-serving. But either way, Alexander gets a letter from Darius, the king of kings, who has now been defeated in a major battle. And by the way, um, when you hear about Philip and Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes is one of the other kings of Persia from before Darius, and this is what he's talking about here. But quote, Philip and Artaxerxes were on terms of friendship and alliance, but upon the accession of Artaxerxes' son, Arsus, Philip was guilty of unprovoked aggression against him. Now, since Darius's reign began, Alexander has sent no representative to his court to confirm the former friendship and alliance between the two kingdoms. On the contrary, he has crossed into Asia with his armed forces and done much to damage the Persians. For this reason, Darius took to the field in defense of his country and of his ancestral throne. The issue of the battle was as some god willed, and now Darius the king asks Alexander the king to restore from captivity his wife, his mother, and his children, and is willing to make friends with him and be his ally. 
For this cause he urges Alexander to send to him, in company with Meniscus and Arsimus, who have brought this request, representatives of his own order, that proper guarantees may be exchanged. End quote. So he's sort of saying, you know, we, we sort of had an understanding before this period, and your dad was a little aggressive against, you know, the the last person that sat on the, the Persian throne, and there's no real reason for you to be over here, so do you think you can just give me back my family and we'll have some kind of negotiation? And the reply from Alexander is just unbelievable. Here, here it is from, from Arian, quote, your ancestors invaded Macedonia and Greece and caused havoc in our country, though we had done nothing to provoke them. As supreme commander of all Greece, I invaded Asia because I wished to punish Persia for this act, an act which must be laid wholly to your charge. By God's help, I am master of your country, and I've made myself responsible for the survivors of your army who fled to me for refuge. Far from being detained by force, they are serving of their own free will under my command. Come to me, therefore, as you should come to the lord of the continent of Asia. Should you fear to suffer any indignity at my hands, then send some of your friends, and I will give them the proper guarantees. Come, then, and ask me for your mother, your wife, and your children, and anything else you please, for you shall have them, and whatever besides you can persuade for me to give you. And in future, let any communication you wish to make with me be addressed to the king of all Asia. Do not write to me as if to an equal. Everything you possess is now mine. So if you should want anything, let me know in the proper terms, or I shall take steps to deal with you as a criminal. If, on the other hand, you wish to dispute your throne, stand and fight for it, and do not run away. Wherever you may hide yourself, be sure, I shall seek you out. End quote. I mean, that's incredible. He's basically saying, you're done. So Darius knows that he's going to have to fight Alexander again at the very least. Alexander starts taking more submissions of Persian city-states here, and he finds himself in a place called Phoenicia. He will start looking around, and he notices that there's an island city called Tyre, and it was going to be necessary to take this place for broad strategic reasons, including supply. It's about a half a mile off the shore of Egypt. So Alexander starts making his way to the city, and the king of this place, a guy called Azamilk, met him with gifts at a place on shore called Old Tyre and sort of tells Alexander that he has his nominal allegiance and he offers a sacrifice to their god Melkart at Tyre itself, Alexander does. But the council of this Tyre place says, hey, please do that over in Old Tyre, and Alexander doesn't like this. He will walk away from this meeting and then send envoys to Tyre demanding submission. The Tyrians will kill these envoys and throw them over the side on this fortified island city and it's on. Alexander's whole army sees the Tyrians do that. Alexander orders a siege of the city, and this must have been difficult to swallow for his men because he's ordering the siege of a city that's half a mile off the mainland with a 200-foot wall. It's just really not going to be fun. Anyone sailing across it would be fodder for arrows, and there's the worry that the Persian navy could just show up at this place at any time. Now the Tyrians have, you know, a pretty strong defensive position, and they're not too worried about a guy like Alexander. But Alexander has probed this place and taken a hard look around, and he's noticed that the water isn't all that deep. He will have his engineers drop a sort of mole, sort of like a floating siege tower, to carry some siege weaponry across the strip of water. They started working on this by sort of sinking mud into the bottom of water, and this provokes the Tyrian archers to start raining down arrows on them. Alexander will counteract these strikes by building some towers in the front, and... 
he's going to go at it and return the arrow fire with some torsion catapulting right over at the Tyrians. Then the Tyrians decide to step up their game. They will take two huge ships and load them up with all kinds of flammable materials and then send them out to collide with Alexander's siege towers, which are now floating in the water. These ships do indeed make it to their targets, perhaps with some Tyrians on board to guide the ships. They will hit these siege towers, and they'll burn to the ground, leaving the sort of construction workers on the mole open to arrow fire, and they will suffer a devastating attack here from Tyre. And Alexander's attack is pushed back badly. So Alexander's plan for a mole is set back, and he just sort of strategically plans for the archers and the fire ships, right? He orders for more moles to be created, and he incorporates what just happened into his design. And then he orders for more siege towers to be mounted on ships to sort of guard the creation of the mole. So it's like they're all circling, maybe, one of the larger moles. It, it all sounds crazy, but his bravery infected everyone around him. And in a short time, he has both the ships and the moles. So Tyre sort of sees all of this unfolding, and they start responding. They will drop large boulders into the water near the perimeter of the city, which, you know, they're, they're used to this. They've, they've seen other people try to take the city, and they get some burning arrows and darts ready again. They get ready some burning sand, which is pretty nasty to have to fight against gravity with, but Alexander has the answer to all of this when he attaches battering rams to ships. This is probably the first time in history anyone has done that, and it must have caught these Tyrians off guard. Alexander has one part of his fleet directly attack the walls, and another part of his fleet go directly after the Tyrian fleet. Alexander is absolutely delivering terror to the Tyrians at this point, when a strong wind suddenly capsizes a number of Alexander's vessels, and he is forced to turn around. There's a lot of precariousness when you start involving your ships in a battle like this. A few days go by of these conditions, with Alexander not really making any progress. And then he sends his fleet out again, and he starts trying to dig up these boulders that the Tyrians sunk in the water. He will manage to get these rocks out of the water, and a number of his defenders can get through to the walls. Open the gates, and with a small assault force, crosses the mole, and a six-month siege ends in a bloodbath. 6,000 Tyrians will die, and 3,000 will be enslaved here. Alexander will have some of the bodies symbolically crucified along the coast next to Tyre. He was not very nice if you tried to present, prevent him from coming into your city. He will send a threat to Carthage, which is another place we've talked about. Carthage will sort of laugh it off, but any betting man should have guessed that a threat from Alexander the Great at this point was serious. Alexander will never get his shot at Carthage, however. He will then attack Gaza, where he meets even more dangerous resistance. He will be perhaps wounded twice, including from a catapult. And in a fit of rage, perhaps, this will be one of the most brutal incidents of the entire campaign. 10,000 are killed at Gaza, and the king of Gaza is dragged by his heels by a horse till he is dead. He'll move on to Egypt, where he will show a great deal of respect to the Egyptian priesthood. And while he will not be declared a pharaoh, as some titles have declared, he will effectively be pharaoh, and here he will really begin the Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt. Ptolemy was one of Alexander's generals who was no doubt present and will sort of follow suit after Alexander. And now he's reaching some of these personal goals, which include tying himself up with some of those extremely ancient gods like Horus and Osiris. He'll be worshipped like a god here. He will sort of stumble into a temple and tell his men that a priest has identified him as the son of Zeus or something, which is, of course, what he's already been saying, but pretty cool when the Egyptian priesthood confirms that kind of thing. And his pretensions about being a god and stuff start to become part of the entire brand here, which 
is going to start to annoy a lot of his guys and Greece more broadly, actually. They're not so keen on this whole I'm a god thing. Then Alexander starts getting ransoms from, I guess, the sort of king of Port Persia, the maybe not king of Persia. Certainly not going to be the great king of kings, king of lands, when you run away from battle, but still apparently able to offer Alexander 30,000 talents of silver for his family and to please leave. And there's a famous line, because Parmenian, one of his older commanders, thinks this looks like a good deal. Whatever you know, Darius had said to Alexander, Parmenian thinks this is a great idea. Parmenian says, I'd take this deal if I was Alexander. And Alexander says, I'd take this deal too if I was Parmenian. Darius had to unconditionally surrender or Alexander wasn't even going to consider the job completed here. He's really just not negotiating at all. In the spring of 331, in the first thaw, Darius leaves Babylon, marches then across the Tigris River and sort of through modern-day Iraq, and eventually arrives at the town of Gogamela. He's got some new, more heavily armored cavalry, and he's got a sort of secret weapon. He's got 200 scythed chariots, which is a horse chariot with heavy cutting blades sticking out of each side. They were previously known to be effective against close-order infantry. 200 is a lot of them. You know, it's usually like a dozen or two you hear in um, kind of taking out a Greek phalanx or, you know, attacking a town. He finds a wide plain between the Tigris and the foothills and just sort of waits for Alexander. Alexander comes north through Syria and across the Euphrates, probably in about August. He makes a camp near Darius, and one night he goes out to see this army and personally gather intelligence. And what he sees is incredible. Arian says that this Persian army is 40,000 cavalry and a million infantry. A million. A million infantry. Theodora says it's, you know, 200,000 cavalry and 800,000 infantry. It's an unbelievable number. You know, we're not going to justify that here at the Zeke's Guide podcast. We don't think that that's possible. We, you know, think that if you had half that number of cavalry, it'd be probably pretty difficult to feed them and maintain them. But if it's 10% of that and it's 100,000, Alexander has 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry, which makes his army only half the size. In my heart of hearts, I'm going to guess this army of Darius is somewhere between 300 and 500,000 men. Alexander is perhaps outnumbered 5 to 1, maybe 10 to 1. Parmenian at this point tells Alexander that they should try a night attack, but Alexander sort of says that this would minimize the glory of his victory. He wants a straight-up fight. Turns out that's a good idea, too, because Darius has a night shift sort of setup with his men that is specifically designated to prevent a night attack, even though night attacks are not very common in the ancient world. They're very difficult to pull off. There are some generals who are able to pull them off. Some of some people are able to operate well at night, but mostly it is a crapshoot. Darius's units will be ethnically organized and on this field. He's got Bessus, one of his guys on his left, who's very senior with a bunch of Bactrians and Armenians and some barbarian peoples, including some Massagiti, who are famous barbarian warrior types. The right flank of this Dari- of Darius's army has some Syrian and Mesopotamian troops. And he's got something that is going to be both surprising, shocking, and intimidating to these Macedonians on one of his sides. He's got maybe 20 elephants and... You know, they're right next to the chariots, right in the front, and there's a giant sort of reserve of infantry behind that. It's a massive army. It may have stretched out into the distance, and it must have been a ghastly sight for Alexander. 
and his army. To make up for the, the threat from the Persian left, Alexander will have Hephaestion set up the spearmen on his right flank while Alexander takes up the center. The left, he's got some cavalry with Parmenian. It's over 100 degrees on this battlefield. Darius has this field kind of booby-trapped with spikes and kind of has other places in the field leveled so his army can really operate. Some of it, it sounds like it's just kind of standard practice for an army this big, but some of it is just genuinely terrifying, and it's surprising he could even get this army here. This is the guy who just ran in open combat from Alexander the Great, you know, not so long ago. Alexander gets in front of his army. He runs up and down this line, calling out individual infantry, telling them that this is a glorious day and how proud he is of them and how strong he feels at the top of this army. Both sides slowly make their way towards each other. Their sand sprang up everywhere. At a certain point, Darius sees Alexander advancing at an angle towards the side of the field and orders Bessus to attack Alexander's right wing, suspecting this was Alexander's way of avoiding the chariots. But that was exactly what Alexander wanted. This opens a gap right near Darius where he's personally vulnerable, and Darius realizes this just in time and brings in some reservists to fill in those gaps. Alexander keeps the pressure on. He orders his right-wing cavalry out against these tribal peoples. And Darius is now forced to use his chariots at a less-than-ideal time. And the chariots tore through the line, and as that happened, a trumpet last rings out over the noise of the battle. This was a pre-arranged signal by the archers from Alexander's army to open fire on these horses, pulling the chariots, which caused the chariots to veer off course into rougher ground. And now Alexander has a clear view of Darius, again, in the middle of this battle, and once again, he chases him down, and once again, Darius, the great king of king, king of lands, king of the universe, king of all the men, king of your mom, your dad, and your kid's orange juice, runs away. Now, there are a lot of t- attempts to just thoroughly save Darius's character here. There's no doubt he's been brave in the past. He defeated a barbarian king in single combat as a young man. I'm just going to voice my personal opinion here. When you're on a battlefield and you outnumber the enemy by this amount and you got your wife and kids with you, running twice gets you a mark for cowardice no matter what in my book. Is it also true that Darius not allowing himself to be killed keeps the empire in good hands and better able to raise an army? Some historians say that, but it's so hard to believe that given the fact that A, Darius isn't known for being so great a commander, his right-hand guy Bessus is though, and that's who gets the gig next, and B, the Persian Empire's history is just littered with chaotic changes of rule, and up till this point, they haven't had a problem. You know, they, they can have chaotic changes of rule, and the empire goes on. Whatever the case here, looks to me that we have an army of lions led by a donkey on the Persian side, and an army of lions led by a lion on the Macedonian side. Darius and Bessus start making their way towards the Zagros Mountains, which is a sort of backwater, and Alexander starts making his way to the crown jewels of Persia proper, places like Persepolis and Susa, ancient, ancient strongholds and strategic locations. It's like he just won a battle in West Virginia, and now he's off to take D.C. and New York City, while Darius makes his way to Center Mass, U.S. Darius is not completely done fighting, but for all intents and purposes right now, Alexander is the king of Persia, and everyone knows it. Alexander starts making his way to Babylon, too. He will receive the submission of a Persian general named Mazaeus, who he actually just fought against at Gagamela. 
He takes up his new digs in the 600-room royal palace of Nebuchadnezzar, where a greeting crowd of Babylonians have come out to meet him. Now, the Babylonians are not Persians, and they probably had about enough of the Persian rule, if anything that I'm reading is true, and were probably excited to see a new face. He gives his troops a big bonus and promises to rebuild a sacred temple and statue the Persians had melted, and the Babylonians love it when you treat their god Marduk nicely. And it's now that we start hearing of the cross-culturalism that some neutral witnesses would observe, maybe what the Macedonians would call corruption of Alexander. Alexander starts dressing in Persian clothing, identifying with Persian gods, and doing the Persian things like big harems and decadent meals. And this isn't popular, not with the Persians, and certainly not with his hardened Macedonian core, who almost certainly saw this Orientalism as basically sacrilegious to their way of life. He continues to disappoint his Macedonian countrymen when he takes this enemy defector, this Mosaeus, who was just a Persian like 10 seconds ago, and makes him a satrap. This Mosaeus guy had, you know, recently led a cavalry charge literally against them, nearly overwhelming Parmenian side. It's tough. And this looks like just it's downright foolish and perhaps treasonous. On the other hand, he's about the highest ranking Persian Alexander has his hands on, and it probably helped out with establishing the continuity of governance. But it's like Churchill letting someone like Rommel run India or something. The natives will not be won over by their new ruler. The frontiers continue to grow, and with it comes some of the problems we might recognize today in terms of nation building. Alexander struggles to establish you know, a shared identity for this disparate and diverse population that was stretched out over a large landmass, and this will prove an insurmountable issue. He's great at breaking stuff, not so good at building stuff and maintaining it. Ian Worthington, whose book on this topic, By the Spear, talks about this moment. He says, quote, Alexander called himself king of Asia, but he was a conqueror with no legitimate claim to the Persian throne. He allowed all Persians their religion, but never understood the intimate bond that tied the satraps to the great king via their common worship of the Zoroastrian god of light, Ahura Mazda, the supreme deity in the Persian pantheon. There was no similar connection between Alexander and the native satraps he appointed, nor could there ever be unless he converted to the native religion, which would be as anathema to him as it would have been to his men. He came to disregard his subjects' religious beliefs, as when he ordered the quenching of all sacred fires on the death of Ephesian in 324, which caused outrage, for this solemn act was reserved only for the passage of a great king. Far from reconciling the people to his rule, Alexander was alienating them. End quote. And we can kind of see here some of what is to come here um, with just the inability to sort of meld the traditions of the West and East effectively. But let's be clear, Alexander very badly wanted to integrate this empire, but ultimately he was seen as a destroyer and not a uniter. And in a lot of ways, it's easy to see why. It all feels just a little cringe sometimes. Alexander has coins printed with Heracles on it, but Heracles sort of looks like Alexander, and no one is here for it. And this is where we get the real lesson. Alexander succeeded as a cult of personality, not as someone who created and distributed you know, a sustainable institutional structure. I'm sure we can all think of a leader in our time who's sort of like that. Now, Alexander makes his way to Susa, which is an ancient, ancient city. He's joined by a new contingent of 15,000 Macedonians and some Thracians, and now he's got an army of about 50,000. 
I haven't looked at every rundown of his troop counts, but it looks to me like this is almost the largest his army will get besides his future Indian campaign. And when you think that about what he's doing with, you know, 30,000 guys before this period, it just starts to get comical thinking about what happens. What if any force, you know, decides to seriously confront this beast at this point? He shows up at Susa and no actual resistance is offered. He takes all the money. And here something happens that to me really does mark the end of the era, and it's deep, it's emotional, and it's extremely satisfying in a certain sense. Alexander walks into a room in Susa that houses all the loot that the king Xerxes took from the Athenians during the Persian Wars. Xerxes was the fourth king of kings, and he's famous for bringing a huge army into Greece, causing tons of death and destruction, and he's basically the whole reason Alexander is here. He's here for Greek revenge. I mean, his father Darius, another guy from before Xerxes' time, had also come into Greece. But he comes across some statues of old Athenian tyrants from way in ancient times. They basically spell out that Athens chose democracy. That's kind of what the the creation of these statues was about. And they're in some ways the model for the rugged, you know, Athens is, the rugged self-determination we here in the West defend today. And Alexander will return these sacred pieces of art to Athens and sit under the throne Darius had crafted here. It marks the beginning of the end of the Persian Empire in a very symbolic way. And the end of the ideas that powered Persia, as Persia was not a democracy and held the democratic system in a sort of disdain. It's the same with capitalism. They kind of frowned upon marketplaces and that kind of thing. And then Alexander makes his way to Persepolis, which is the real religious and administrative center of the empire. It is the heart of the empire. It is in some ways maybe like if you had New York and Washington, D.C. in the same place. It was once home to Xerxes, that Persian king who brought war to all of Greece, and Alexander brutally burns this place to the ground and orders the mistreatment of their people, killing many and dragging many into slavery in what many historians say was a very purposeful act. It is not a high point for the Alexandrian conduct. This is really the end of the Persian Empire, and it becomes very real here. There's maybe a way of viewing this as a sort of exclamation mark to the end of the Persian Wars about 150 years after the fact. And after a, a horrific month of, you know, just pillaging the sacred city, it catches fire, perhaps by the hand of Alexander, and it burns to the ground at the end of the pillaging. Just like the Temple of Artemis. Now, this is a shocking wake-up call for the rest of Persia. Alexander is still held in contempt by Zoroastrians today for this act. It rings down the ages. But Alexander has reason to be scorching the earth. There's a lot of dissent brewing. Sparta, for example, has a king at this point called Aegis III, who decides to start compelling Greek city-states to challenge Alexander. In fact, there's a whole lot of sourness towards Alexander in Greece, including in places like Athens, where you wouldn't think it would exist. Alexander is seemingly avenging somewhere like Athens for the brutal treatment Persia gave them, and they just don't go along. But Aegis, this Spartan king, gets far enough to raise a mercenary army and challenge Alexander in Greece. Alexander sends off his general Antipater, and it's actually dealt with quickly. But it's a sign of the fragmentation here, even though it's really put down basically overnight. Sparta apologizes very quickly, and Alexander spares them. I'm inclined to wonder about this, and of course it feels to me that Alexander had a great deal of respect for Sparta. After all, they did hold off the great king of Persia during his adventures in Greece, and Alexander was certainly aware of the Spartan military heroism via Herodotus. So they're sort of spared here. 
Meanwhile, off in the east, where Alexander is, Alexander starts hunting down Darius through perilous desert country, where Darius is being confronted by his leadership to give over command to a guy called Bessus. Darius refuses, and there's a coup. Alexander marches quickly and astonishingly through a part of the desert that took everyone else like months to cross through to find Darius already dead with his forward command perhaps reaching him and giving him some water just before Alexander gets there. Alexander orders a great burial for the King Darius, who is now the last of this dynastic line. The Macedonian Empire at this moment now stretched from Pella to Hecata Olympus and includes Syria and Egypt. It's a truly mind-boggling moment. Arian has this to say regarding the legacy of Darius. Quote, In military matters, he was the feeblest and most incompetent of men. In other spheres, his conduct appears to have been moderate and decent. Though the truth may well be that, as his accession to the throne coincided with the declaration of war by Macedon and Greece, he had no opportunity to play the tyrant. In these circumstances, being himself in greater peril than his subjects, he could hardly have treated them with the usual cruelty of an oriental despot, even if he had wished to do so. His life was an unbroken series of disasters from the moment of his accession to the throne. He was immediately faced by the defeat of his satraps and their mountain troops at the Granicus. The loss of Ionia and Aeolus swiftly fought, with the two Phrygias, Lydia, and Alcaria except Halicarnassus. Soon afterwards, Halicarnassus, too, was gone, and the whole coast as far as Calicia. Then came his own defeat as Isis, and the bitter sight of his mother, wife, and children as prisoners in enemy hands. The loss of Phoenicia and Egypt was followed by the debacle at Arbella, his own shameful flight from the field, and the destruction of the mightiest army of the whole of the east. Then, a homeless fugitive in the lands he once ruled, ruthlessly betrayed by his own guards, a monarch in chains contemptuously smuggled away from the scene of his former glory, he was finally murdered by the treachery of those most bound in duty to serve him. Such was the unhappy life of Darius. Dead, he was more fortunate, for he was buried in the royal tomb, his children were given by Alexander the same upbringing and education they would have had if they had still been king. And his daughter became Alexander's wife. He was about 50 when he died. End quote. Yeah, so it's sort of the end of an era here. Um, one of the lesser kings of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, certainly. It's interesting to wonder about what might have happened if Alexander had found himself against the like of someone like Cyrus or Darius or even Xerxes. But Alexander wants to press forward here. His men are actually on the verge of mutiny, though, and this is just going to be a recurring theme over the next, you know, really the last couple of years of his life. There's been a lot of stirring about his growing decadence and Orientalism, maybe a sense that Persia was conquering Alexander just as much as he was conquering Persia. And Arian seemingly talks about this moment, you know, at a time when it really, really looks like, you know, the the Macedonian high ruling class and the Macedonian people should be wholesale sort of restoring a new vision for this part of the world, Alexander is just really drinking the Kool-Aid of these other cultures. And here's how Arian relates it. Quote, Alexander's Median style of clothes, Median is Persian, also brought them no little anguish, it is said and the Persian-style weddings were reportedly not to the liking of the majority either, liked not even by some of the grooms, despite the great honor of being put on the same footing as the king. There was also the case of the satrap of Persis, who adopted both Persian dress and language, 
That rankled because Alexander was pleased with his playing the barbarian. And then there was the matter of the cavalry of the Bactrians, Sogdianians, and Arachtians being enrolled in the companion cavalry. That hurt too, as did the addition of a fifth hipparchy, cavalry commander. This was not entirely composed of barbarians, but when the entire cavalry force was increased there was an enrollment of barbarian troops for it. Barbarian officers were also appointed to the Ajima, the royal bodyguard. All this was offensive to the Macedonians. It looked as if Alexander was developing a completely barbarian mentality and placing Macedonian culture and the Macedonians themselves at a place of low self-esteem. End quote. So when he says barbarians there, he's talking about the Persians. He's talking about the Persians being basically wholesale put into the Macedonian army, which seems like it's a violation of everything these Macedonians believe in and a disavowment of their own expression of their martial culture. They thought that this was an honor to serve in this army, and they thought that it was uniquely theirs, and Alexander was sort of taking it away from them. And it looks like Alexander is sort of abandoning his roots and trading up, or at least incorporating Persian culture to a point that made everyone uncomfortable. Interesting to wonder why. Why was someone like Alexander inclined to do this? Alexander is a conqueror, but he's also a fanboy for his culture, right? He, he loves the Macedonians. He loves the Greek history. He modeled himself after Achilles and took seriously the teachings of his tutor Aristotle and had the seemingly divine mission of spreading Greek culture. Why was he abandoning it so readily? Was this a cynical ploy to sort of fuse both traditions? Or was this a genuine capturing of Alexander's ostensibly idealistic mind? Crazy set of circumstances because this army of his is incredible. I mean, they were putting up with the insane marches and the battles and getting through deserts, but this cultural abandonment is a shock to their morale. Maybe they even are more in pain from the abandonment of the, 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 you know, the social abandonment of their king than they are from the actual physical day-to-day -day labor of marching through a desert. It's a really crazy set of circumstances. And, you know, it, this cultural abandonment is physically out in front of you every day. Um, you know, he, he's going to wear, Alexander is going to wear more of these Persian garments with a blue and white diadem. He'll wear the purple tunics, all of that. And his compromised middle ground satisfied neither the Macedonians or the Persians because the Persians didn't think he was Persian enough. And the Macedonians thought he was being too Persian. He will also encourage his Persians to kneel in front of him which flies right in the face of the Greeks not wanting to worship living people. He's provoking his own people, and things start to really unravel for him at this, and there's a plot formed against him right around this time by some young boys that decide that they're going to take things into their own hands because the Alexander situation is out of control, and you know it, it's fascinating to read about. It's interesting to wonder how much it might be propagandized, and my guess is quite a bit, but the story is related by Arian and a number of other historians. But some people call it the Philotus Affair. Um, reading from Ian Worthington, he says this um, about this plot, quote, While the Macedonian army was at Freyda in the winter of 330 to 329, one of the more puzzling events in Alexander's reign took place, the so-called Conspiracy of Philotus. A companion named Dimnus, about whom nothing is known, decided to assassinate Alexander, although why is a mystery. Dimnus told his lover, Nicomachus, of his plan, who in turn told his brother, Sebelinus. Without missing a beat, Sebelinus informed Philotus of the plot. Because of his rank, 
Philotas had automatic access to Alexander, who regulated his court carefully and admitted you into his presence without any prior invite. Sebelinus wanted him to take the news to the king at once. Philotas had only recently rejoined the army because he had to make funeral arrangements for his brother Nicanor, who had died during Alexander's operation against Satabarzins. Perhaps still grieving over the loss of his brother, Philotas may have conducted only a cursory investigation into the allegations. At any rate, he apparently decided that Dimnus posed little to no threat to the king. After another day of prompting him, a, a frustrated Sebelinus took the matter to one of the royal pages, Metron, who smuggled him into the royal tent where he finally alerted Alexander that he was at risk. So Alexander has found out about this plot to kill him, and he is angry that his buddy Philotas didn't tell him. Alexander has Dimnus seized, who kills, you know, this guy kills himself, and he'll capture nine other men who he thinks is part of this conspiracy. But he'll have Philotas also arrested as a co-conspirator, and this is where things get really, really ugly. It's an extremely delicate matter because Philotas is the son of Alexander and Philip's longtime greatest general and sort of longtime thorn in the side of Alexander Parmenian. He will have Philotas tortured, will attempt to extract information from him about his father, and have him stoned to death the next morning. Now, the laws of Macedon ordered the families of traitors to be executed, but Parmenian is a high-ranking guy, and you can't just kill him so easily. He's at Ekbatna, which is a crucial city. He's got 12,000 men, and he's in charge of the treasury there. It's an extremely delicate matter. Alexander sends some of his guys over to Ekbatna. They hand Parmenian a letter explaining the confession of his son and stab him to death. There's an outcry over his death, but Alexander quells that by giving him a nice burial. It's a stunning and terrible end for a guy who helped Alexander in basically everything he ever achieved in his life. It feels too convenient, too. Parmenian was constantly the thorn in Alexander's side, constantly second-guessing him and always telling him what it was his father would have done. It was probably just an easy way to rid himself of someone who had suddenly become internal opposition. Alexander moves on from this and hunts down Bessus. Remember, he's that guy who deposed Darius and killed him, and is now effectively king, or at least the commander of the greatest part of the remaining Persian forces. He will capture Bessus, send him to Ekbatna, where he will be ritually executed. And now a certain Spitamenes starts leading some local troops against Alexander, one which manages to wound Alexander with an arrow that shatters his fibula. He's resting when he gets word that the Spitamenes guy is going to have Bactria and Sogdiana revolt. A bunch of nasty tribes show up and slaughter some Macedonian garrisons right then, and this is the beginning of the most grueling time for Alexander in Asia. They trudge on a while here, you know, and they're going to theoretically go deeper to the east, and they reach this palace at a place called Maraconda, and here something happens that is also heartbreaking. It's one of these pieces here that just show Alexander is unraveling. Alexander and his entourage will be at a sort of play in Maraconda where a bunch of sycophant types start heaping all sorts of lavish praise on Alexander, calling him a god and that sort of thing, with Alexander sort of accepting the praise and detracting any sort of praise from his father. And then one of this, uh, one of his old guys, you know, for, left over from his father, Clytus the Black, who, remember, had saved Alexander at the Battle of the Granicus. Remember, he's that guy that chopped off that guy's arm who's bearing down on Alexander. Well, his sister was also, uh, you know, the, the sister of this Clytus guy also raised Alexander the Great. You know, he, she was one of his nurses. 
Now, they're very drunk when this happens. They're kind of in the most vulnerable state. And it seems like this had been building with Clytus for a while. He's just one of many in the, you know, Macedonians who feel like Alexander has really crossed some lines here in, especially in being worshipped as a living god, but also in just his taking on of customs that, if I'm if I'm guessing here, Clytus found very effeminate. And... You know, uh, there's a moment where Alexander is basically worshipped like a god, you know, like I said. And what happens is Clytus kind of makes a coy remark and Alexander kind of quips back that, you know, um, that's why I'm sending you off to go be a satrap in this random place. And Clytus asks if he's to be treated like the rest of the Persians and calls Alexander all sorts of names, perhaps calling him a false king. And Alexander takes a spear and stabs to death one of his closest companions and most effective warriors. It's a horrifying moment, and Alexander seems to recognize it immediately. He will actually try to kill himself right there. He will be stopped, and he he will be kind of sort of sequestered into a room, and he's crumbling for days. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll talk to a number of people in his retinue who try to sort of breathe some life back into him. And uh, he'll talk to one guy called Callisthenes, who was actually a relative of Aristotle and probably carried some good consolation skills and wisdom with him. And he finally talks to another guy called Anaxarchus, who's able to somewhat revive him. But you can just feel this is really completely spiraling out of control now. This is almost a perfect moment, too, for understanding the dichotomy that is so frequently presented that deals with the Persians and the Greeks. It looks to me like whatever Greek nationalism existed about what Greeks were like and how they fought and how they lived, it just sort of boomerangs in your face when you recognize how easy it was for presumably the best among the Greeks to be so easily changed by the cult. It feels like Alexander is sort of being torn apart at the seams and whatever fantastic ideas Aristotle filled in his head, they're either just dissipating or they're completely backfiring. Maybe a sort of insecurity is popping up here, but maybe Alexander was just getting too drunk and getting too many people upset. Whatever the case is, Alexander has now killed several of his close companions. And yet, some of Alexander's boldest deeds are still in front of him. In the closing chapters of his life, we will see Alexander reach the sort of zenith of his military prowess, but we will also see him reach the low points of his character, including a streak of brutality and pettiness that could rival any modern-day dictator. Now, there's a guy called Spitamines out there who we talked about who is harassing some cities in Bactria while this is going on. He sends one of his generals, Craterus, Alexander sends one of his generals, Craterus, to go deal with this issue, but the Spitamines guy is scorching the earth and really waging what we might call a guerrilla war today, and several rebellions go on here, and Alexander does two sieges that are just brilliant and captivating. Um, he, He looks obviously like he's turning into a bit of a tyrant. He's got some really bad behaviors that come along with this stuff, but the boldness here has to be pointed out and revisited because these stories are inspiring. He gets to a place called the Sogdian Rock at a certain point of this campaign in around 330 BC. It's a fortified city on top of a cliff that is considered basically unconquerable. He's got supplies for two years and has a garrison there of probably ten to 15,000, and he is surrounded by some very steep cliffs. A guy called Aromazes is holding this place, and Alexander sends some negotiators to him, and of course Aromazes doesn't understand that he's dealing with a guy that is certain he's descended from Zeus and really kind of living that out in a real-life fantasy now. 
He tells them to get out and we're not surrendering. Come and get us. Blah, 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 blah. Um, he says, you know, you'll need winged soldiers to conquer this place. So Alexander just sort of gives his soldiers wings, as we're to believe. He notices that the front of this place is guarded by that large force of men, but then he notices that the rear, which is basically a steep cliff, is totally unguarded. Ariomazes basically presumes no one could get up there. Alexander disagrees, and he takes about 300 of his guys with climbing experience up to the far side and offers 12 talents to anyone who can make it to the top of the wall. 50 guys fall and die doing this, but they make it up at night, presumably about 250 of them. Alexander takes the front end of his force to the front of this hill city in the morning, asks for Ariomazes to surrender again, and Ariomazes laughs and says no again. But Alexander tells him to look behind him where those 300 soldiers are, but they're packed in tightly in a close space, so Ariomazes can't tell how big this force actually is. And he says that his soldiers do indeed have wings, Alexander does. Ariomazes is amazed and surrenders this place. Alexander has now used boldness and his incredible ability to intimidate enemies to subdue Bactria and Sogdiana. His troops went, you know, they, they want to break and they may have been enthused because at just this time he marries a woman called Roxanne, a very beautiful Asian woman. Now, he's already got a sort of wife in a woman called Barsine who births for him a child called Heracles. It's a good move in a number of ways, including courting the father of this woman, who is influential in the part of the world he wants to bring under his rule. He's kind of conquering by marriage, sort of a, you know, a policy his father would have appreciated. Then Alexander takes on some new, even more Persian customs. He has subjects beginning to kneel in front of him and sort of kiss his hand, and this does not go over so well with the old Macedonian guard, as you can imagine. On one occasion, one of his guards will sort of laugh at a Persian subject, who does this, and Alexander punches him straight to the ground. But even with all of this kind of sourness and anger going on, Alexander is making for India in 327 BC, and he's got 70,000 men with him. These Indians had a sort of subsidiary relationship with the Persians, so they were already on the chopping block. But they had also you know, fought Greeks about 150 years ago before this period. Xerxes actually had brought some of these Indians over. There's another reason here, and wouldn't you know it, it's Alexander's ego. He needs to go to the end of the world. And he knows he's got to go to this India place first because Alexander knows that Cyrus the Great fought in India and that so did Heracles. And it sounds like he openly wants the Indians to accept him as a god. He really needs this validation. But it's actually more than that. Alexander has a sort of Lewis and Clark ethos. He needs to see the edge of the world, and he wants to sort of confirm what his tutor Aristotle said, which, if you can believe it, he sort of thinks that India stretches out into the ocean and wraps around beyond Africa and potentially out into the other side of the world. And, you know, he's the smartest guy in the Greek world, and that's what he thought, and that's kind of funny. But with this Lewis and Clark ethos, Alexander basically can't stop himself. And the Indians and India at this time is portrayed as sort of a land of mysteries, and the things they do know are powered by stereotypes including some work by a writer called Theseus, who sort of caters to Oriental stereotypes known by Greeks in a previous history. This place is a wild adventure for Alexander, and he's loving it, but his men are probably less enthralled than he is. There are Greeks here, even some practicing Buddhists, but the cultural divide and language divide is large enough that he needs translators. 
His first move is to the Indus River Valley, but he needs to sort of reinforce his rear before digging deeper. He will send Hephaestion and Perdiccas through the Khyber Pass in the main roads of India. Alexander travels with Craterus through northern Bajor with the plan that by the time both armies reunite that they've secured the rear and the actual invasion could happen. Hephaestion and Perdiccas deal with one revolt, but it goes smoothly enough. They put that down. Alexander, on the other hand, gets frustrated and does some extremely classless things here, some that will forever tarnish his legacy. He will besiege a place called Masaji, where a defiant king will be killed by his wife. When she demands, he surrender to Alexander, and Alexander will offer some surrender terms, including sparing everyone, to, including this queen who opens the doors, and Alexander lets the native population just totally go, but slaughters all the mercenaries. In a hysterical fit of madness, he will also kill the wives of these mercenaries who show up. The whole thing turns into an insane bloodbath when the escaped natives see what Alexander has done. Add to this that Alexander starts executing the Indian philosopher class known as Brahmins, and he will set off the natives so much that they will be the people who eventually kick him out. Some of these natives will give the Macedonians a lot of trouble and force some of Alexander's generals to call for help, not a high watermark for Alexander. After this is done, Alexander is eyeing an, another prize. It's called the Rock of Aornis. But it, it's worth pausing here for a moment and just kind of pointing out, I mean, he just executed a class of philosophers. We know that he was interested in philosophy. We know that he has a habit of sparing the people he likes. What exactly is going on here? Well, you know, if it's me kind of coming for up for an explanation here, it's sort of like Alexander respects a lot of people to a very distinct extent, but if you get under his skin for any reason, he doesn't care who you are. So anyways, he's moving to the Rock of Aornis. Um, and some, some context is needed here first. There's a story of Heracles, obviously in legendary history, if you want, where um, this Heracles deals with what's called his 12 labors, all sets of incredible tasks. One of these tasks was to take this place Aornis, and Heracles actually failed at that. Alexander sees Heracles' failure, of course, as his opportunity. Aornus is on top of a literal mountain. Alexander advances on this mountain fortress with about 10,000 men. This fortress is on the eastern summit of this mountain, and Alexander sends Ptolemy with light infantry and hypospasis, those are the spearmen, to the western mountaintop at night, avoiding all detection. Ptolemy gets to the top of this sort of place that overlooks uh, to the west, the rest of the Rock of Aornis, and he gets there and he creates a fortified camp and signals to Alexander he's there with fire. It looks sort of like the Sogdian Rock in that way. He advances with the main force, and uh, later that day, the army inside attacks Ptolemy. So they come out and they attack Ptolemy. The, the people at Aornis attack Ptolemy when Alexander sort of stops during the day. Ptolemy fights all day and into the night, he stands up to the worst of this attack, but this tribe manages to occupy the no-man's land during the day until Alexander manages to build a bridge in four days and nights to cross a, a around the sides of this rock. The king inside, a guy called Nautica, comes out and says he's done right before Alexander gets to the wall. And now Alexander has succeeded where Heracles has failed. Alexander now controls the whole Kofin Valley. He meets back up with Hephaestion and Perdiccas, and they celebrate, and now they're off to Taxila, where they will take its submission. But the celebration doesn't last. They get the word here that a big, nasty coalition, fronted by a guy called Porus, is waiting for Alexander behind 
just beyond a place called the Nandana Pass. Alexander marches his army to the top of this pass, and beneath them they find Porus's massive army, near the Hadaspes River. This Porus guy is apparently a world-renowned warrior who was seven feet tall and known for his exceeding bravery. He's a standout. Porus is also described as a wise and respected leader. It's a great matchup, seemingly. Alexander sends a note to this Porus guy saying, you should come meet me at the Hadaspes to submit. And Porus says, I'll meet you there, but I'm just going to go ahead and bring my army too. And here we have a great matchup. The Hadaspes River was swelling from monsoons and sort of metering, teetering around flooding. There was a long crossing point, but this Porus had stationed his troops on the opposite side of the river from where Alexander actually was. But this Porus also seems to have studied up Alexander and also strategically places some infantry along the right and left side of the river, kind of trying to block maybe that upstream crossing to a certain extent. Porus also has a bunch of war elephants. It's really no joke. It's a serious army, and Alexander's about to find out um, they're commanded by a serious dude, too. Porus has maybe 30,000 infantry, 4,000 cavalry, 306 man chariots, and 200 elephants. This army, besides, you know, in some ways resembles the army he fought at Gogamela with way less infantry and way less cavalry, but with the chariots and the elephants, there's an element to this that is very similar. He's on top of an elephant when they spot him. And he has a bunch of these elephants. Porus has a bunch of these elephants facing the river so Alexander can't pull off that river crossing. Alexander is probably fielding about 30,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry. It's really not a great situation to be able to deal with these elephants in this context. Alexander needs to move quick because there are reinforcements coming from another king here to Porus. Alexander has a trick up his sleeve, though, and wouldn't you know it, he starts sending out his troops to scout the middle sections and islands of this river and sort of provokes Porus's men, although Porus controls their visceral reaction initially. And there's some small-scale skirmishers that go out and kind of mirror Alexander's light infantry movement on the other side. So they're kind of doing whatever Alexander's army on the other side does. So if they go to one side, um, Porus's army goes to one side. Alexander's army goes to the left, Porus's army goes to the left. This goes on for days, and Alexander's guys manage to stack up a bunch of supplies, and eventually Porus starts thinking that Alexander is waiting for the monsoon season to end. He's just trying to delay this battle, is what Porus thinks. So he stops sending out his men to mirror Alexander's movements, and that's just what Alexander wanted. Alexander identified a densely wooded segment of the stream upriver with enough cover to assemble rafts and boats. Porus is lured into a sense of false security. One night, he orders for a companion to be dressed up as a double, Alexander does, and orders the fire to burn and sounds to come from the camp on his side of the river. Now, during the night, he slips away to the crossing, Alexander does himself, with 6,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. Craterus is left in charge of the majority of the army in camp. Craterus maintains the image of Alexander remaining at camp, and he sets up another guy within view of Porus to sort of feign a crossing, while Alexander has made his way all the way the 17 miles upriver and has actually brought a sizable force behind Porus. The plan is to lure the elephants away from the river and then have Craterus cross as well. It's a surrounding movement, essentially. Alexander's force starts to cross when a thunderstorm hits. Remember, he's upstream further from the Porus's camp, and they'll do this in the middle of the night. He makes a small mistake here. 
He identified one segment of the stream as being the other side of the stream when really there's an island between the two shores. He and his troops have to paddle these small ships all the way around the cove of the stream to cross the second segment of it, but by the time they get over to the side, it's the early morning, which is not what Alexander intended, and Porus's scouts spot them. They do not have time to properly assemble. He now does not have the element of surprise at all now, and he's over there with a paltry quarter of his army against potentially the full strength of Porus's army. Porus sends his son upstream with 20,000 cavalry and 120 chariots to stop Alexander from completing the crossing, which I guess they're still kind of in the middle of. Alexander responds quickly by sending some horse archers down to you know slow them. It's an extremely dangerous scenario, though. Alexander is not done crossing this river, and this really could have been the end right here, but some rain makes the terrain difficult for the chariots that have come to now attack Alexander. The Macedonians start to gain the upper hand in this upstream skirmish and manage to kill 400 of this force, including Porus's son, before they retreat. This delays Alexander enough for Porus to prepare, and Porus is able to prevent a crossing from the part where Alexander's army is, and Porus does this by leaving a small force there. He will then turn the bulk of his force towards Alexander Poruswell, up the river, where Alexander is, with elephants in front, chariots on the side, and infantry in the center. He wants to use the elephants to break Alexander's infantry formation, which is a good plan. Diodorus says of Porus's army, quote, His whole array looked very much like a city, for the elephants resembled towers and the soldiers between them curtained walls, end quote. Alexander's initial plan of surprising Porus is ruined, but he quickly formulated a new strategy. He's eyeing up the elephants, and he thinks they present sort of the biggest threat here. So instead of attacking Porus's center, where the elephants are, he attacks the cavalry on the flanks. He splits the two cavalry into one he commands, and one is also commanded by a guy called Coenus. He wants to draw both cavalries out and let Coenus on the other side come around and attack this attacking cavalry on the rear. He will have the infantry in the front move forward slowly with orders not to touch the elephants until the cavalry flanking maneuver is complete. Porus then sends out these elephants, but the cavalry on Alexander's side is able to evade these elephants. In the center, Alexander has some horse archers and infantry attack the elephants and the main body of Porus's army. The elephants are charging the center of Alexander's army now, but they're well-trained enough to get out of the way and clear little highways for the elephants. They will attack these elephants as well with javelins and arrows and even some swords, but the elephants cause heavy casualties in the stereotypical ways, impaling some with their tusks, stepping on people, and even throwing some with their trunks. It was utterly brutal but many elephants start trying to desperately escape. Alexander continues attacking the sides, however, and manages to completely surround Porus. Porus' army will flee through the gaps of Alexander's cavalry, but Porus himself will stay surrounded by his own personal guard, defiantly throwing javelins and being wounded numerous times. Alexander will see this and be very impressed. Porus is eventually whisked off by his personal guard, but Alexander is so impressed by this he will send some emissaries to just, like, go find him. This guy's a rock star. He will have him treated by his own doctors and will make Porus a king of this land and even give him some more down the line. Porus and Alexander have the same heroic code, and after this time, Porus will be fiercely loyal to Alexander. Alexander's horse will die soon after the battle, Bucephalus. It was the horse that he jumped on when he was a kid. Perhaps this horse knew the end was near. Now, this battle is one of Alexander's greatest. It shows daring, 
you know, logistical mastery and his ability to improvise. It's a high mark in terms of Alexander's conduct, too, in sparing surrendered enemies as well. But the problem he faces now is that they're sort of lost. Anthony Everett, in his book on Alexander, says this, quote, India was turning out to be a much larger place than had originally been anticipated. Alexander and the Greek scientists he had recruited had assumed it was no larger than today's Punjab region, and that a short march would bring them to the edge of the Indian Ocean. Now that they were actually in the subcontinent, reports could not be ignored, which showed that land, states, and populations stretched infinitely eastward. Unquote. There's a king here who's talking about a d- desert that Alexander, he, he runs into this king that says that there's a desert that takes 12 days to cross. Other rulers say it's all fertile land to the east, and this level of confusion and geographical ambivalence really starts to force a lot of his men to put their foot down. Alexander is singularly committed, though, seemingly to bringing the whole world under his dominion. According to Arian, quote, he advanced with his army, intent on subduing the armies to the east. In his mind, there could be no end to the war as long as there was an enemy left, end quote. But his men are tired when he reaches the Hephaestus River. Very tired. They've been marching the last two months in some awful conditions. We hear mentions of dysentery, horrible snake bites, dehydrating, you know, trench foot, and, you know, total exhaustion. They're, they're also just being terrorized by Indian poison arrows, which are providing particularly horrible deaths, with black pus coming out of wounds, uncontrollable vomiting, convulsing, gangrene. And they get to this Hyphasis River, and they have decided enough is enough. Alexander orders his men across this river. They refuse. A guy called Coenus comes forward and says, we love you, but we cannot keep going. And Alexander basically runs away in disgust to his tent. He goes to his tent for a few days and thinks about things and then comes out saying the gods demanded they return home. His men love this, of course. Now, did the gods actually demand Alexander go home? Certainly, Alexander advertised his celestial communion as part of his day-to-day life. But really, this underscores something else about Alexander. He chose to lie instead of admitting defeat. It must have been an extremely pressing position, but the admission of failure here would have been a burden I'm not sure he or his men could handle after coming so far. A few days after this, the guy who came up and pleaded for Alexander to turn over mysteriously dies. But it's not really a mystery of how Coenus died. It's just another one of those things that forever colors Alexander's character as a paranoid tyrant at the end. It's hard to see him behaving this way. It's really, really rough to see his character changed so much. So they turn around and they're going to make their way back to the Hadaspes River where they fought that battle against Porus. Alexander will start getting a new fleet for sailing down the Indus and he appoints a certain Nearchus of Crete to admiral it. He will get some reinforcements here. And in November of 326, they'll set off down the Indus River in a formation that is meant to intimidate the local peoples. And despite Alexander's copious sacrifices to the gods, many of the ships will hit rough waters and sink. They will get the worst of some of these tribal coalitions who want to stop Alexander. And there's some payback here, seemingly. Alexander finding out that maybe a bunch of these tribal coalitions are after him is intent on going on the offensive against a fortified city called Mali. His troops are in open mutiny at this point, though, but somehow he drags them kicking and screaming to this place where they reluctantly take the city. But there's a citadel at this city, and Alexander can't settle for just taking the city. He orders his main body to attack the citadel at this city. They refuse. 
he orders his guard to attack the citadel. They refuse. And in a fit of total madness, in a moment where you know this is Alexander, and where the history truly sings that fact, Alexander charges the citadel and climbs to the top, quickly followed by two or three of his closest companions in a suicidal maneuver. He grabs a ladder and starts single-handedly climbing up. At first, he doesn't provoke a reaction from his men, but he continues to scale the side of this fortified citadel, and the army becomes increasingly concerned. He gets to the top and jumps down into the citadel beneath. The army loses sight of their king as two, maybe three of his closest companions reach the top with him. Alexander and his three companions are now facing perhaps a full unit of Malian defenders. One is immediately killed. Alexander presses on until he is shot with an arrow through the neck. Breath and blood are coming out of this wound. Alexander is staring up at the sky, drifting in and out of consciousness. The arrows keep flying in. He has one comrade guarding his body as they are pressed up against a fig tree. This feels like the end. But moments before Alexander was struck, as he went out of view of his army, his army had become hysterical. In a crazed mob, they smashed through the citadel gates in a mad search for Alexander, killing every soldier and perhaps every woman and child they encountered until they found their king. Alexander is carried out of this place and brought over to Critobulus, who, poor guide, has just been dealing with these messes for damn near two decades now. He was the doctor who had sewn up Alexander's father, Philip, a few times in the 350s, and somehow he manages to stop the bleeding and stabilize Alexander, but Alexander is in a very bad way. He's lost blood, he's weak. He's in some sort of state of paralysis when he's trucked in front of the army who thinks they're seeing a dead Alexander. He managed to wave his hand a little bit, though, which sends great joy through the army, and somehow he manages to mount a horse the next day and charge before the army, showing he was alive. A few weeks go by, and Alexander seems to make a solid recovery. He will deal with some revolts by some of the Indian tribes, and these will be exceptionally brutal reprisals. They will not help him maintain his rule in India. He will, however, finish his way down the Indus. He had now conquered an enormous landmass, had taken the submissions of scores of people, and was only 31 years old. He is now going to make one of the biggest mistakes of his career. He will attempt to outdo Cyrus the Great by crossing the Jadrosian Desert. And this 450-mile trek through a sanded wasteland will prove more awful than the entire preceding decade of campaigning. Arian says that in between eating pack animals, the soldiers choked and were poisoned by the local vegetation, many will die of heat stroke. The shifting sand will leave some of the animals unusable, and they will be left just completely abandoned. They will then be hit by a flash flood that drags away all of their baggage. They will lose their way for days on end as the navigation points are washed away. But even here, Alexander manages to shine. This is an account that survives from Arian about this Macedonian army suffering through the desert and one of Alexander's actions here. Alexander was suffering terribly from the thirst, and he was also in great pain from leading his men on foot so that they might bear their own difficulties better because everyone was feeling the same hurt and stress. In the meantime, some of the light-armed soldiers went in search of water and found a small pool in a shallow cleft formed by a small, dribbling spring. They collected the water with difficulty and straightaway took it to Alexander, as if it were a valuable gift. As they approached him, they poured it into a helmet and gave it to him. He took it and, praising the men for what they had done, immediately poured it out on the ground in full view of everyone. 
His action reinvigorated the entire army to such an extent that it was as if everyone had drunk the water that Alexander had poured away. End quote. This is a nice tribute to Alexander, but it does not excuse a lot of the behavior we've already heard about. This could be guilt. This could be any number of things. He does have a habit of behaving like this as a commander, but it still just doesn't really do away with all the death and suffering that's going on now, even though it is a nice little victory for his soldiers. But, you know, beyond the little sunshines that get through here, there is an extremely ugly underbelly. The Persian satraps are revolting and killing people, and some of Alexander's own garrisons are mistreating and perhaps raping women in some of his provinces, perhaps thinking he was not going to survive the desert. And a lot of this army, um, about a third, did not survive this trek. So let's not forget that this was a disaster, and it left a lot of people who were vulnerable to attacks. Um, they suffered exactly that. And now, despite this disaster, Alexander is still openly calling himself a god, which is probably really infuriating to a lot of people now. He's referring to Philip as merely his mortal father and Zeus as his real one, openly. The apotheosis in his mind is now complete. And the funny thing about this is that there were probably a great deal of people who believed it now. And it's fair to wonder here if Alexander really believed all of this. And if he did, well, challenging the notion of his greatness seems more reasonable here. He will continue through a just totally megalomaniacal downturn that will challenge every citizen or witness to decide whether or not he was truly a god. A lot of people have some gnarly things to say about the end of Alexander's reign. But Alexander will make his way to Pasigardai to visit the tomb of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was the founder of the Persian Empire, and Alexander had a great deal of respect for him, perhaps using him as a model. He will discover that a local satrap has ransacked the temple of Cyrus and will task a guy called Aristobulus with rebuilding it. He will meet up with his boyhood friends Hephaestion, and they will march on down to Susa, arriving in March of 324. And when he gets to Susa, he will mass marry about 90 of his top-ranking men to Persian women. Alexander will marry two women here, one named Statira, who was the daughter of Darius III, and one called Parasatis, who was the daughter of Artaxerxes III. He will have a giant celebration and pay off all of his soldiers' debts here. He knows he really has to go above and beyond. Now, there's some talk, especially in that Oliver Stone movie of Alexander, doing this as a sort of a, a brotherhood of mankind act. But we shouldn't be confused. This was all pragmatism and no idealism. He used foreigners to maintain his army. Native noblemen and women being bound together solidified his power projection, plain and simple. It would also pollute the Persian bloodline and end the ethnic identity of Persians, so no one could challenge him as king of... This action will have a long legacy, and it's part of the reason modern-day Zoroastrians and Iranians call Alexander the accursed, or perhaps even the demon king. Alexander starts making his own way north to Mesopotamia, and then he announces that all of his soldiers are going to get to go home and get big bonuses, thing, saying that after, you know, that, they're going to have to join him on some new Arabian campaign. And they basically say, hey, Alexander, why don't you go march with Zeus, your daddy, instead? We're done with this. More has gone on here, up to and including Alexander taking on some Egyptians and Lydians into a new unit of the army, and even going so far as to call them a counterbalance to the Macedonian force, these troops see this disturbing pattern and end up in open revolt. 
He will put down some ringleaders of this revolt brutally. And then he goes on a self-praising kind of campaign, just maybe hiring all the propaganda and media to fan his notions of apotheosis and self-aggrandizement. But this attempt to glorify himself and shame his soldiers was useless, which is, you know, something he's doing more and more now. He's sort of telling his soldiers that they need to obey their king and calling them weak. The standoff just continues and gets worse. And and this standoff only ends when Alexander threatens to fire every single one of them and replace them with Persians. And that will cause some of the rank and file here to capitulate and kind of come back. He will try to unify the Persians and Greeks at some banquets and pray for them to reach some harmony, but it never works. Alexander starts making his way to Ekbatna in 324. There will be a large drinking party here with music performances and athletics, and his best friend Hephaestion will drink too much and die slowly over the course of the week. He will kill Hephaestion's doctor, thinking maybe he poisoned him, and he will spend weeks planning an elaborate funeral for his friend, including cutting off his hair and, of course, dispatching an embassy to the Oracle of Zeusamon, requesting Hephaestion a formal status as a hero. No one in Persia, and perhaps no one in Greece, really feels bad for Alexander at this point. And in a truly insensitive move, he will put out the Persian sacred fires, which is something that is only supposed to be done when a great king has died. And now, Alexander feels truly alone. It feels like some of the brutality and nightmarishness of the campaigning is catching up to him. The campaigns are so brutal and so dynamic that they actually change warfare in their own times. Cities will now start relying on mercenaries a lot. Siege warfare becomes more popular. They'll become apathetic in some senses to their own defenses too because of how much Alexander made resistance seem useless. And Macedonians have paid an incredible price at this point. They've been at war every year that Philip or Alexander was king, which is a long time now, 60 years, 50 years. The brutality here really hits home when you consider the well-to-do folks are being brutalized regularly. Even, even They can't even escape it. The rich guys can't escape this. Philip, Alexander's father, was shot in the eye with an arrow. We know that. But Clytus had endured being stabbed and stabbing. You know, Alexander had almost died from arrow fire. Darius chopped the arms off Macedonian prisoners and, you know, sort of soldiered their sides with pitch before a battle. Just cuz. You know, this is a lot. Survivors must have felt absolutely enraged and traumatized too. Still, somehow, somehow, in 323, Alexander is making his way to Babylon, where there are, you know, philosophers telling him to go away or die. You know, this is a bad omen. Go away. But he goes into the city and takes up the palace while omens of his downfall become more and more pronounced. He gets some tokens of submissions from all kinds of people with some notable holdouts, including a lesser-known sort of tribe at this point called the Romans, who were already building a reputation for fierce warrior prowess, but were still just a small affair. And during a short period, maybe a year, Greece is getting something it has almost never seen, peace and prosperity. This is wider Greece we're talking about now. Instead of having the wider warring factions of cities, there is finally one Greek city-state basically running the world. Athens will grow considerably, ordering the creation of a fleet um, and a stadium, the theater of Dionysus, and a bunch of festivals. A lot of the Greeks had to acknowledge the fruits of this peace, even if the Macedonians themselves felt less good about it. 
But one day in Babylon, Alexander hosts a party with some of his buddies. They're celebrating his, you know, Hephaestion being granted a heroic cult. And Alexander is actually wanting to go to bed, but a guy called Medeus of Larissa egged him on to keep drinking. He drinks an entire pitcher of wine, and when he's done, he breaks into a violent spasm and collapses. He dies a few days later. His last days are recorded in a few journals, but there are no details that really, really help us understand anything beyond terminal alcoholism as being the cause of his death. He was a few weeks shy of his 33rd birthday, and all hell breaks loose. Alexander's death, first and foremost, is somewhat a mystery to them. There are three main theories, natural causes, disease, and poison. Olympias, Alexander's mother, accuses one of Alexander's generals, a guy called Antipater, of poisoning. Most historians think these are spurious allegations, though, as he's, you know, she's always had issues with this Antipater guy. Alexander's known symptoms look to some doctors to be a reaction to strychnine or arsenic, both which would be tasteless in the unmixed wine he was drinking, but these poisons tend to be fast-acting, and Alexander survived a couple of days. My money may be on that because if someone was going to almost conquer death itself, well, Alexander, maybe he just survived a couple of extra days after being poisoned. The final idea is that Alexander dies of old age at 33, which also sounds crazy, but if you think about the miles this kid has put on his body in 13 years, perhaps there's just only so much stabbing, drinking, and dehydration one body can take, although I still like the terminal alcoholism explanation. I think that that's what happened. Alexander's body will be removed from the couch he died on and embalmed. A large funeral wagon is drawn up, but Alexander's body isn't even cold yet, and the fight of his sub-commanders has already begun. This wagon will leave Babylon for Aegea, but it is ambushed by Ptolemy, who wants Alexander's body for political purposes. Ptolemy will take Alexander's body to Memphis and eventually move it to Alexandria in Egypt, where he will start a dynasty you may have heard of, the Ptolemaic dynasty. In Greece, Alexander's death is hard to believe. Like, at first, no one believes it, but when they find out it's true, a bunch of Greek city-states decided, again, this is a good time to have a revolt. Athens leads this rebellious coalition of people. They will regret that when maybe 70-year-old Antipater puts it down. Our old friend Demosthenes from Athens, who was one of Athens' greatest political orators at this time, kills himself over this. Then came questions of what Alexander's intent was of who the empire should go to. He gave his signet ring to a guy called Perdiccas, but on his deathbed, he's asked who the empire should go to, and he says, to the strongest. And this will result in decades of wars ripping through the empire Alexander created. Olympias will kill several of Alexander's half-brothers and close confidantes. She's just ruthless. Cassandra, one of Alexander's friends, will have his wife Roxanne killed. And from this will emerge the three Hellenistic kingdoms we know of as Ptolemaic Egypt, Antigonid Greece, and Seleucid Syria. In the midst of all this, Macedonia becomes a backwater and will become a Roman province shortly after. So what is really the legacy here? What does all of this mean? It's easy to see Alexander's life as a straight causal arrow from the childhood cribbed in epic hero worship all the way through to a death of despair or one of collaborative malice. There is no doubt that he is one of the greatest conquerors in world history, even when you consider that he was unable to keep his empire together after he died. But even in death, Alexander conquers beyond the grave, 
His generals after him used his likeness and his strategies and his ideas to pave the way forward for a new Greek empire. His quest for personal honor often defined his style of leadership, which left a mark in the minds of many who fought for him, a lot of whom we eventually hear of through secondary sources. He is perhaps the most notable figure of the ancient world, eliciting adoration not only from warriors and generals, but from philosophers as well. Alexander Fever will continue to grip leaders in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, with countless fictions written about him that even pollute what historical accounts did once exist. But of all the stories, all of the legend, all of the mythos, the effects of Alexander in the time he actually lived and the moments preceding it are astounding. He opened up trade routes, commerce, travel, and social interchanges between geographically and culturally disparate parts of the world. But this world Alexander created was a short-lived fantasy at best, and a vacuous mirage at worst. It disappears in front of us across the pages of history before our fingers can even grasp the page. But the things that we know about him personally are immortal. The singular conquest philosophy, the grandiose ego that couldn't be cooled by frost at the heights or burned at the core of a star, the wet idealism of a bloodthirsty child raised to be king but never to rule, the limitless martial courage of a man who would never retreat from his battlefield enemies, but was quick to surrender to his own worst emotions. These are legends that survived the perilous journey from the ancient past to the present, and the fact that they've survived tells us as much about ourselves as it does about the young king who dreamed of being God. The true story of Alexander the Great is not that he conquered and one day died. The story of Alexander the Great is that he conquered, died, and 2300 years later, the whole world still stinks of his corpse.